Merci. Uh, please be seated. <clears throat> Minister of Citizenship and Immigration et al. versus Mohammed Harkat. Ursula Kmirczyk, Robert Freiter, Marianne Zorich, and Andre Seguin for the appellants and respondents, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration et al. Matthew C. Weber and Norman D. Boxall, Megan Thomas, and Leo Russomano for the respondent and appellant, Mohammed Harkat. Paul J.J. Cavaluzzo and Paul D. Copeland for the special advocates, no oral submission. Robert W. Hubbard, uh, Greg Skirkowski for the intervener, Ontario General of Ontario. Nader R. Hassan and Gerald Chan for the intervener, British Columbia Liberties Association. John Norris and Francois Dadour for the intervener, Canadian Council of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Anil K. Kapoor and Lindsay Trevelyan for the intervener, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Lauren Waldman, Peter Edelman, Jacqueline Swaziland and Claire Crummy for the Intervenor Canadian Bar Association. Marla C. Edward and Adriel Weaver for the Intervenor Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. Fazal Baba, colleague M. Ellis, pardon me, El Ghazar for the Intervenor Canadian Council on American Islamic Relations, now known as the National Council of Canadian Muslims. Michael Bossin, Leila uh, Demerdash, Anna Shea for the intervener Amnesty International. Barbara Jackman, Sharon Aiken, and Andrew Brewer for the intervener's Canadian Council for Refugees et al. Breeze Davies and Aaron Dan for the intervener Criminal Lawyers Association. Before we begin, uh, if it is agreeable to counsel the court would propose that we hear the intervener for the Attorney General for Ontario directly after uh, the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And at that time, we'll take our morning break. So I'll call on uh, Ms. Kamarczyk. Chief Justice, Justices. The security certificate regime permits the removal of persons from Canada who are considered to be a danger to the security of Canada or who are members of terrorist organizations. The amendments which Parliament carefully crafted in response to this Court's decision in Sharkawi has a balancing of two essential imperatives. The first is to provide a fair judicial process to persons whose Section 7 rights are clearly engaged. 
The second is to protect confidential national security information, which cannot be released without damaging or harming, causing great harm to Canada's national security. The scheme has succeeded in achieving both these goals. Mr. Harkat was provided with sufficient information which allowed him to know the case he had to meet and to respond to all of the allegations against him. The special advocates were substantive substitutes for his lack of complete knowledge. Their actions on his behalf in the closed proceeding protected his interests carefully and completely. His story was not accepted because he lacked any credibility, and as the designated judge found, he had surrounded himself in layers of clouds into which he will not any light in. The ministers take the following position on the issues raised in the two appeals before you today. The security certificate is constitutional and accords with the principles of fundamental justice in Section 7. Secondly, the designated judge's decision that there was no abuse of process and no violation of Section 7 should be restored. The Court of Appeal erred in setting aside that assessment without... Um, and thirdly, the CSIS informers should be protected by a class privilege. Fourthly, the summaries of the conversations that were excluded by the Federal Court of Appeal should be restored and the matter should be not have been returned to the designated judge. I will address the constitutional question and the abusive process question and Mr. Frader will deal with the questions of informer privilege and the remedy. I will refer to the appellant's factum as well as a condensed book. We apologize for the length of the condensed book, but given the very long and lengthy proceedings below and the 30 volumes of the appeal record, we considered it of benefit and help to the court to extract what we consider to be essential in these proceedings. So if I may then turn to the facts. The uh, ministers claim that Mr. Harkat left his country of birth, Algeria, as a young man in 1989 to join the Jihad, the holy war which was then being waged in Afghanistan. He joined thousands of other young men who were being recruited to fight as Mujahideen, holy warriors, in that war to oust the occupying forces of the Soviet Union. He traveled first to Saudi Arabia, where he obtained a job with a charity, which sent him to Pakistan to a town called Peshawar, which at that time was a center for refugees. It seems too, too, to me that you're collapsing a bit, a little, the, the timeline that he had been involved in the political troubles in Algeria at the time they had an election that was canceled, and that that he went. To, uh, that he allegedly went to uh, to uh, to Afghanistan a little later than the the date that uh, mm. the parties seem to be agreed on is that he did leave uh, approximately 89 or 88 or 89. Uh, that is what the records. There is some uncertainty because he gave very vague answers, but his evidence was that uh, the year in which he started was supposed to be going to university and allegedly started was the year that he had to flee that fall rather than 
from going to university, he had to flee because he found out that uh, the police were uh, after him. He had a call from his uncle that the police were after him, and he had to flee. The reason the police were after him, allegedly, was that he had allowed his parents' house to be used as a meeting center for a political party that was later banned, but at that time, the ministers alleged, at that time that he fled, the party was actually a legal opposition and was campaigning for the elections. So he, the ministers maintained that he was not in any fear uh, at that time because the party was land, uh, banned a year or two later. So uh, if I may then continue, he traveled to Saudi Arabia where he obtained a job with a charity which, uh, as I said, sent him to Peshawar, Pakistan, which at that time was a, a center for refugees fleeing Afghanistan, as well as a center for the Mujahideen soldiers, uh, warriors who were being equipped uh, and sent on their route to training camps. This had become the logistical center for the operations of the campaign in Afghanistan and it was where they were provisioned and accommodated in guest houses, which also served as training centers and compounds. Uh, the ministers allege that after Mr. Harkat uh, finished his uh, warehouse job with the charity, he stayed on for 16 months in Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, working in a guest house, which we allege, the ministers allege, was operated by Qatab, who was then a Mujahideen, a very important Mujahideen leader, uh, fighting a war at that time in Pakistan and Chechnya. Mr. Harkat in the guest house would have facilitated the transfer of warriors to and from those camps. He claims at that time that he was merely living on his savings and that he had never seen a Mujahideen soldier in his entire four years uh, in Pakistan and that he did not know about the war that was being waged there at all. He traveled to Canada from Pakistan in 1995 on a false uh, Saudi Arabian passport and in Canada he successfully obtained Canadian refugee status on the basis of his alleged fear of being arrested because of his support for the banned political uh, Algerian party. The credibility of this account was later put in doubt by the designated judge who did not accept it. Uh, however, in, in, in 2002, Mr. Harkat was detained on the first security certificate which was issued uh, in that year uh, on the allegations that he was a member of the Bin Laden network. That certificate was found to be reasonable by a designated judge of the federal court, and it was the subject, ultimately, of this court's uh, decision in the, tr the Sharkawi trilogy. Sharkawi, Almarai, and Harkat were the three appeals that this court heard, and, uh, and it was in that case uh, that this court held that the security certificate regime was unconstitutional. So in February of 2008, the Immigration, Refugee, and Protection Act was amended in accordance with this court's judgment, and a new security certificate regime was introduced, with the addition, the very important addition, of special advocates who are to represent the person's interest in the closed proceedings. So therefore, in February 20, uh, 22nd on uh, 2008, a second certificate, the new security certificate, was signed against Mr. Harkat, claiming that he was inadmissible on, uh, the, uh, on the grounds that he had engaged in terrorism, that he was a danger to Canada's security, and he was a member of a terrorist organization. That certificate was referred to the federal court for a determination on its reasonableness. 
The, the, the security in intelligence report, which was attached to it, the public version, set out in great detail 13 allegations and the supporting public information, which was made available to him. The 13 allegations, the two most serious ones were that Mr. Harkat, while in Pakistan, was associated with Qatar, a Chechen terrorist, uh, and had worked with him uh, in the guest house. And secondly, that after his arrival in Canada, he had assisted and maintained contact with a number of Islamist extremists, including Qadr and al-Shir. Now, Islamic extremists, uh, which was a definition that the, the designated judge uh, agreed on uh, and on which there was a number of, a number of uh, witnesses gave evidence on Islamic extremism. So the, the definition that was accepted uh, are people who advocate the use of serious violence against those who do not believe in their extreme fundamental interpretation of Islam. They seek to rid Muslim countries of governments which are not adhering to pure Islam. And they also consider it essential to remove all Western influence, as it is considered that but for the United States are seen to be supporting the non-believing and secular regimes in certain Muslim countries. Now, in, in terms of the examples of the Islamic extremists who the, the ministers alleged Mr. Harkat had maintained contact with in, while in Canada, uh, one example was Al Shear, who was a man uh, extremist who at that time was in, in England, London, England. He called Mr. Harkat a number of times uh, before uh, his arrival to Can before he Al Shear came to Canada. Uh, and while on his arrival, he was arrested, and in his possession, he had a number of dangerous objects. He had a knife. He had a garrote, which is a uh, a weapon used to strangle. He had notes on assassination and killing methods. He had lists of guns and ammunition, as well as pages from an Al-Qaeda manual. Uh, before he was deported from Canada, Mr. Harkat visited uh, al-Shir in jail and had a number of conversations with him before his arrival. There were a number of further disclosures that were made after the original security intelligence report was filed, uh, further disclosures that were made as a result of the, uh, the work that was being done by the special advocates in the uh, closed hearings. However, there was one other incident that occurred, in, in, in the, which is not worth noting, and that is that uh, in June of 2008, this court's decision in Sharkawi 2 came out, uh, which required uh, the, uh, which uh, stated that um, this court dealt with the policy of the CSIS to destroy its investigatory materials. As a result of that decision, the designated judge in this proceeding, who was already uh, in uh, the, the hearing had not yet, the reasonableness hearing had not yet started, he decided that the ministers and uh, had to produce all of the material that was in the possession of CSIS that uh, was related to Mr. Harkat. And so that resulted in production of thousands of documents, none of, none of which actually added substantively to the original allegations. However, that process uh, was, uh, was, uh, was uh, slowed the process down a little bit because the special advocates, the minister's counsel, and the designated judge all had to review the thousands of pages and uh, agree on the redactions if there were any to be made and the summaries, if any, for the purposes of release to Mr. Harkat. So that process took an additional six months. 
Uh, and at the same time, in the closed hearings, the uh, ministers, uh, sorry, these this, this special advocates uh, were vigorously uh, challenging each of the ministers' challenges of, uh, challenging each of the ministers' claims of privilege, and uh, which the designated judge was then ruling on. And as a result then of his rulings, additional disclosures were made, but those, the disclosures were usually in the form of summaries on which all parties, including the designated judge, had to agree. So the process of actually completing the summaries and the redactions that were being issued to Mr. Harkat from the closed proceeding was time-consuming and being done very, very carefully by all of the parties. Justice Noel, uh, has to be said, provided regular detailed public communications to Mr. Harkat for the entire duration of the closed proceedings, and he was providing updates on disclosure issues and summaries of what was happening in the closed proceedings. Uh, volumes three and four of the appeal book, uh, for example, are a complete compendium of his uh, orders, communications, and summaries of what was happening in the closed. So he was pre providing a very detailed update. As a result of all of that work that was being done, a revised uh, public security intelligence report was provided in February, and that's, uh, we'll get to it a little bit later, but that's at tab two of the condensed book. It contained additional detail on the existing allegations, uh, uh, as well as, so it didn't, at that point, that revised, that, at that point, uh, there were no additional allegations, but more detail had been released. And in particular, uh, Mr. Harkat received summaries of 20 intercepted conversations in which Harkat, Mr. Harkat had per been participant in, uh, in 11, sorry, 11 and 19, in, in um, 18. Seven of these were family conversations with uh, family in Algeria and a fiancé in Algeria. Mr. Harkat uh, accepted that those family conversations probably happened, and he accepted those as probably being reliable. He denied, however, the, the other, uh, the other uh, 13 uh, and said uh, those were conversations. The 13 conversations dealt with people that he was associated with in Ottawa. Uh, in April 2009, Mr. three new allegations were released uh, to Mr. Harkat, and between April and then and further in December, a number of other allegations were. Uh, just, uh, just a question. Yes. I think uh, the summaries, of them, as we have seen, are in, are in English. I understand that the conversations were generally, generally took place in Arabic. Yes. And in one of the uh, yes. uh, the, the dialects. And yes. So, and were tra translated at some point? Yes, the, the interceptions, uh, the person who was listening to the interceptions uh, was the same person who was translating them and writing the report. So there was only one person involved. The person uh, was an Arab speaker or, uh, and an English speaker as well. Uh, and so that communications person was listening to the interceptions, was writing a report on them, uh, in English, and that report was being uh, was filed in CSIS's data bank. What Mr. Harkat received was a summary of those reports, and the reason the minister was not prepared to release uh, the full reports was because it, uh, it would reveal CSIS's investigative methods, it would reveal perhaps uh, 
what was that, what, what was being intercepted. It wasn't clear whether these were cell phone, you know, what was actually being intercepted. It would reveal the methods of operation of CSIS, and so he was only provided with summaries. Uh, those summaries were quite fulsome, and we'll look at those later, but uh, those summaries, uh, particularly the, um, the, uh, the ones that, uh, but there was not a second, the Federal Court of Appeal error made a mistake or misapprehended the evidence because the Federal Court of Appeal was under the impression that there were three hands touching these summaries, and therefore they were not reliable because they assumed or incorrectly understood that there was one person listening and the second person transcribing into English, translating into English, and then a third person making the report and the summary. And that isn't the case. The evidence was quite clear that it was one person listening, translating, and transcribing and writing the reports. In a, in a, so the, the new allegations uh, that were released later to Mr. Harkat in April and December of 2009 dealt with the, his relationship with Katab and the more general allegation with respect to what was the earlier allegation said that the guest house was thought to be associated with Katab, but the new allegations were that he actually was in the service of Katab and that he was running the guest house uh, in the service of Katab for whom he worked as a chauffeur and ran errands. So uh, that is my conclusion of, these, uh, of uh, that uh, background, but it is important to note that the public case that was made against Mr. Harkett was consisted of, of three, three categories of, of information, the 20 summaries of intercepted conversations, information from CSIS informants, and information from foreign agencies, as well, of course, as just general background. The, uh, if I may then turn to the hearing of the reasonableness hearing, uh, the, of the reasonableness of the certificate, because that is an important uh, part of this appeal. There were 33 days of the open hearing in the public reasonableness uh, and 17 days in closed. Uh, in the closed proceedings, there were over, uh, close to 20 witnesses who were examined and cross-examined. In the open hearing, the minister's main witness was John, a CSIS intelligence officer who was a specialist in Islamic extremism, and he gave detailed evidence on the allegations and on the supporting material. He also explained how CSIS investigates threats, as well as the process of assembling the security intelligence report. He also testified about the threat posed to Canada by Islamic extremists and by the bin Laden network and why he considers Mr. Harkat to be a danger, why he and CSIS consider Mr. Harkat to be a danger to Canada's security. Justice Noel in particular found John's testimony was informative, very well presented and balanced. The minister's expert witness was Professor Redner, who testified on counterterrorism in relation to al-Qaeda and on the evolution of modern Islamic extremism, since all of that is integral to the, to the allegations in this case. Uh, he also testified on the use of sleeper agents and al-Qaeda's use of sleeper agents. And again, the designated judge found his evidence to be extremely useful and informative, he gave, as he gave an impression of neutrality. Mr. Harkat himself testified for five days, uh, and he also had five expert witnesses who gave evidence on all of the same issues that I've enumerated, uh, all of the same issues, as well as on the reliability of the security intelligence report documentation. The federal, in the, um, as a result of that hearing, and as a result 
furthermore, the entire proceedings, Justice Noel, the designated judge, gave five significant and substantive decisions during the course of the two and a half years that he was seized uh, with this matter. He gave a decision on the reasonableness of the certificate, uh, firstly, uh, and an exhaustive, it is 120 pages, it's a very exhaustive review, uh, and he found that the ministers had met uh, 12 of the 14 allegations had been uh, uh, found to be reasonable and had been established on a balance of probabilities. These included the most serious ones that Mr. Harkat had worked for Qatab. Uh, had operated a guest house for him in Pakistan, and he also determined that Qatab was involved in terrorism. He also concluded that he, and the second most important allegation was that Mr. Harkat had maintained contact with existing Islamic, assisted ex Islamic extremists such as Qatar and Shir. He carefully reviewed all of the evidence, uh, very minutely, both experts and Mr. Harkat's, and he uh, particularly examined Mr. Harkat's evidence because Mr. Harkat has given evidence on a number of occasions before in his, in his immigration refugee proceeding and also in his first security certificate proceeding. And so Mr. Uh, Justice Noel was able to compare his testimony to the evidence he gave here. And he found that he had been simply not credible. It, his testimony had been inconsistent, incoherent, implausible, if not contradictory, and that's at paragraph one of his reasonableness decision. None of his story was plausible from the point of leaving Algeria to uh, the job in Pakistan and until his arrival in Canada. And Justice Noel found in particular that he gave the impression of reciting a meticulously prepared and fabricated story. He denied, and his denial of the very basic elements of the minister's case, which was supported by the evidence, undermined his credibility. There was a great long list of examples of his lack of credibility. He wasn't able to say how he obtained the money he had to travel here to Canada, which was very expensive. He testified about the exact cost of his airline flights because he tried to fly twice. He had claimed to have had savings, but those savings proved to be at probably 100% of what he had earned, if not more. He couldn't explain uh, how he had, uh, why he had failed to uh, obtain travel documents to leave uh, Pakistan after his job ended. He, he said he couldn't go back to Saudi Arabia because it would have meant obtaining an Algerian travel document, and he was scared to go to the Algerian travel aid, uh, the Algerian consulate because of his political troubles. However, he didn't uh, find that he was scared enough to go and obtain an Algerian passport to travel to Canada. So there were terribly big inconsistencies in his story about his life in uh, and his travels and his activities in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, which uh, undermined his story completely. The second major decision which was rendered by the judge, the designated judge, was the constitutionality of the security certificate, and he found that it was, that it did not violate Mr. Harkat's right to a fair judicial process. And I will skip then uh, to the third decision, which is, because we will cover the constitutional issues in greater length. Uh, but the, he made a decision on an abusive process motion that had been brought by Mr. Harkat to stay the proceedings. Um, on the grounds that the destruction of the original CSIS investigatory tapes, the tapes of the conversations that uh, were no longer available, 
ceases as a result of the policy that it had uh, mistakenly adhered to. Uh, not mistakenly, it, it had a policy of destruction uh, which uh, it, uh, in good faith, believed to be in accordance with the Act. Uh, and so in accordance with that destruction policy, the tapes of the intercepted conversations are not available because they have been destroyed. So all that is available are the reports and in, in, in uh, their files. So Mr. Justice Noel said that destruction did not amount to an abusive process, nor did it constitute per se a violation of Mr. Harkat's Section 7 right to know and to respond to the case. He said that the summaries of the conversations which were redacted were accurate and reliable. He reviewed closely all of the evidence that was available to him in closed and in open, and he concluded that they were supported, each summary was supported um, by what he knew uh, of the conversations that he had with the people and uh, who he was associating with or who he knew he had been associating with. So. Uh, given that there was no, the destruction was not done for any malicious purpose, there was therefore no prejudice, and without prejudice, there was no violation of Section 7. Uh, so therefore, just for there, my, excuse yes. me. Yes. Uh, just one question on uh, Section 83 uh, of the Act, which mm -hmm. says that a judge uh, could base a decision on, on evidence that is not disclosed or summarized. So is that your opinion that, uh, according to 83, a certificate could be issued without uh, disclosing the evidence in any way or summarize the evidence? It is possible. Uh, that, that certainly is possible. Uh, that, hasn't, that was not the case here. Uh, in, uh, just, Mr. Justice Noel made it absolutely clear that uh, all of the allegations were in public. There was some supporting information that he did not know and uh, some of the uh, detail he did not know. Uh, but all of the allegations were in public. Uh, and so, but it is, it is, it is conceivable, uh, theoretically possible, that a judge may have to make a decision. But the Act also requires uh, the judge uh, to ensure that um, the person is provided with a summary that enables them to be possibly informed. So there are two obligations uh, as reasonably informed of the case as possible. So uh, there are two obligations on the judge to ensure that the person is as informed as possible and secondly to ensure that there is, uh, that does not include anything that would be injurious to national security. So that is the balance uh, that the judge must reach. But those are the two obligations that are firmly on the judge, to ensure the person is informed and to ensure that there is no injury to national security. Sorry. If I can ask yes. a question, you can answer it later if it's yes. going to interrupt the flow. But you focused here on disclosure provided the yes. information is not injurious to national yes. security. Um, tell me how we interpret the words or um, endanger the safety of any person. Because we always focus on injurious to national security, yes. and but yet that, every, every time it says, or endanger yes. the safety of any person, which on its face is very broad. Yes. How do we interpret those words in that context? We can, in this particular case, uh, we can interpret them to mean uh, human sources, for example. Um, because human sources, um, as I indicated, this case was made up of information from CSIS had obtained information from human sources. Those human sources would be in this community, and Justice Noel 
make uh, mention of that. Justice, um, my friend uh, Mr. Frader will deal with the informer privilege issue, but I can say that there is there was evidence that Justice Noel accepted in his decision that human sources can be put at risk. So would it be your position that endanger the safety of any person is restricted to human sources? I'm no. just trying to understand. No, it's not, on no. its face, it's very broad language. Yes. In this and I'm looking case, for some assistance on case, how to interpret it in a way. Each case will be different. Each, each case will be different, and each case will be very much rooted in the facts uh, of the, and the evidentiary record. In this particular case, there were human sources that that were uh, a part of the evidence in the closed proceeding. If, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure you're understanding my question. I understand how it relates to protection of human yes. sources. My question to you is that these, the, the language of mm -hmm. the provisions uh, in a number of places, and particularly about the disclosure mm -hmm. of information, is on its face much broader than just the protection of the safety of human sources. Right. So, how yes. do can you give I us some insistence needs, in how? Yes, I think it needs to ha it needs to be open-ended a little bit to allow for uh, each individual fact situation. So. There might be a case where the human sources or the persons who are in danger, uh, whose safety is endangered. It may be some other example that I can't think of at the moment, uh, where it is an individual, a person. Uh, perhaps it's not a. Perhaps it's in you know, someone who is providing information, not to CSIS but to some other agency. Like there, there are any number of scenarios which, but it, it would be some person whose identity. Uh, would the release of that person's identity would be uh, create a harm to their safety? So, would your position then be that safety of any person would have to relate to the protection of national security? It would be only in that context that we look at safety of that person. It would probably have to be related to national security. Yes, because the person's information I it was, is likely to be information that's related to the national security information that's being provided, but not always. I guess you can see we're trying to draw you into the legal issues. We know the yes, background. I know. We've yes. studied this case. I know you And have. we've spent 35 minutes just basically yes. going over. Yes. So there are very important issues to resolve that's, here. Yes. Uh, we will move to them right away. Uh, we will le go uh, leap in with uh, huge speed to the security, uh, sorry, the uh, constitutionality of the provisions. Uh, the most important principle uh, which must be considered in deciding what, uh, uh, whether this scheme is contrary to the principles of Section 7 are the, 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 the statements that the Court has made many, many times uh, that the requirements of fundamental justice are not immutable, uh, but rather they vary with the context and that depending on the context will determine what those principles are, what the requirements of fairness are, uh, and uh, here it is important to consider society's interest. So society's interest must be considered in determining what the Section 7 requirements are. And we say that the principles of fundamental justice uh, here is the, the society's interest is the protection of that national security information. And what is essential uh, is a fair hearing. It doesn't have to be the fairest hearing. It doesn't have to be the most perfect hearing. That The court has made that clear. Uh, but it is essential that Canada's interests be protected. Uh, and uh, what exactly was being withheld 
from Mr. Car Harkat, the context is an immigration context and the context is a national security context. There were three categories of national security information that Mr. Justice Noel uh, withheld from or that Mr. Harkat wanted. Uh, one was the criminal uh, intelligence information which comes from foreign agencies uh, and that can't be disclosed as this court well knows without the express written permission of those foreign agencies. It's protected by the third party rule and Canada relies very heavily on foreign agency information because we import our foreign information, our national security information largely. And so uh, that third-party rule, the release of that information without written permission would be very injurious to our relations with those countries. And it would be of great harm to our national security to release that information. He also secondly wanted information that would identify uh, the, by, by releasing the reports of the intercepts, uh, that would re release information that would identify human or technical sources or the modes of intelligence investigations. And that too, even the use of code names uh, by the persons uh, writing the report, the use of code names or code words uh, is extremely harmful if released because if it's of great benefit to, the, to other uh, to, to, to people who could put it to extremely, uh, to harm Canada's security. The third, uh, th third type of information that he wanted and that Mr. Justice Noel did not permit him to have uh, is anything that would really uh, show the methods of exchange uh, in the filing system, CSIS's filing system, the methodology, uh, and the, uh, the, what were the areas of concern, what was CSIS interested in, what did CSIS think was an area of threat, as this too would be injurious to national security because all of this is very sensitive and of utmost interest to foreign agencies. So if I turn then to uh, the, the context of an immigration proceeding is a very important one because this is in the context of a proceeding where it's a very uh, uh, informal process. It's supposed to be informal and expeditious. Hearsay is permitted. Uh, the, the law of evidence is not necessary. The, the, the uh, evidence which can be received is that which judge thinks is reliable and trustworthy and appropriate, even though it's not admissible in a court of law. So therefore, the rules of evidence are much relaxed and hearsay is permitted. So all of this uh, is important to appreciate and, and uh, to understand in terms of the context uh, which the rules of fundamental justice uh, will require. So in this particular case, we say that the national security and the immigration context mean that the right to know the case here cannot be absolute. Uh, this court has made it clear that national security concerns may impose restraints uh, on what uh, can be full disclosure. The court said that in Ruby and in Sharkawi 1 and 2, that national security may constrain what, we, what someone has a right to have. And have a, so the right to know the case here in this civil immigration proceeding is not absolute. Um, Where do we, uh, you're right, it's a civil immigration uh, proceeding. Where do we factor in, though, the impact on the person who is the subject of the proceedings if it goes against him or her? So you, you've put the broader purpose context, but don't we have to also look at the serious impact if the uh, proceeding goes against the, the subject of the, of the proceeding? And, and that has to also be considered and weighed, uh, most definitely. This is not a, uh, 
this is not a, a simple immigration proceeding by any means. This is not a simple deportation or a simple inadmissibility hearing. He has been, uh, the allegations are on serious grounds of inadmissibility. Um, but that, and, and, but he it will be entitled to have the, the risk uh, reviewed uh, before any de deportation would take place. Uh, the risk that he would face on a deportation to Algeria would be reviewed under the Immigration and Refugee Act. And the, that act has a number of avenues which will allow uh, his risk to be assessed. Uh, is, is he going to face risk of, of torture, any mistreatment? Uh, persecution on his return to Algeria. So the Immigration Act contains those safeguards, and this court should should take that into account. Um, if can, I may, can I, can I just ask you? Can I take you back to uh, uh, Section 83.1i for a minute? That's the section that says that the judge uh, may base a decision on information or other evidence, even if a summary of that information or other evidence is not provided to the permanent resident or foreign national. Uh, do you say that that is, that if, if that were to take place, that that provision is consistent with Section 7, with fundamental justice, or do you concede that it's not necessarily consistent with fundamental justice, but that it's saved under Section 1? I would say neither with respect. Uh, I would say that this court here has to decide the constitutionality of these provisions on the facts that are before it today. And on the facts before it today, uh, Mr. Justice, the, the, the designated judge did not base his decision on, an on allegations that were not before Mr. Harkat. Uh, it is possible and uh, there it is not possible, I think, at this stage to say whether that would be an unconstitutional decision or not because we won't know what, what efforts are being made by the special advocates in the closed proceedings in that case where there is only one allegation and it is a secret allegation. We don't know that. Um, and so I would say that this court should look at the evidentiary basis that is before it today. And on the evidentiary basis that is before it today, Mr. Harkat, Section 7 rights were fully uh, protected and were not violated in any way. He fully knew the case and was able to respond to it completely. The fact that he could not cross-examine, as he claims, the human sources, uh, doesn't help the fact I that think that you're not quite addressing the, the question that was not put to, to you. It's, it's whether this, this provision in itself uh, would, be, uh, would amount to a breach of Section 7 is a, in as much as a decision might be made on the basis of information never communicated in any form, even in the form of a, of a, of a summary. I still would say that, that, that that is for the next court to decide because we don't know what efforts might be made by the special advocates in that, that case. We don't know uh, what the sensitivity of the information is. It's difficult to conceive at this point uh, how one could either attack or defend a single allegation case because it isn't before the court at the moment. Uh, and there may be, uh, there may, it may be that a designated judge may make great efforts to try to provide enough summaries to allow the person to be f informed. 
Can you give us an example of how a case under I would work uh, and, and how it could be constitutional? The permanent resident or foreign national does not know the information, evidence being used against him, even in summary form. He knows nothing. Justice and Scott. how can that be constitutional? I mean, you're, you're going to explain it. That's my question. Justice Noel suggested that, Justice Noel in his constitutionality decision suggested that he was opining and that perhaps that could take in, uh, could refer to a, um, an espionage case or uh, cases where the evidence is so sensitive uh, it cannot possibly be released. Uh, and that perhaps the espionage case was a case in which I would apply. Yeah. Well, but that then brings us back to Justice Rothstein's question. Would you seriously maintain that Section 7 has been complied with, or would that, that section, if it were to be upheld at all, have to be upheld under subsection one of the it points. may be by section one, but we would leave that. It would be my answer that we have to leave that to the second to, to the next case, uh, because the the evidence on these cases is so very different, and we do not have a case before you today where uh, there there is uh, a single uh, closed allegation. The case you have before you is that there are uh, 14 public allegations which he is fully aware of, and uh, it is. I would submit not. But we are asked to judge the constitutionality of the, of the regime, and uh, uh, this is not a case-by-case case sort of thing. The question isn't just, we're mis it is a question, but in addition to asking ourselves or being required to decide whether Mr. Harkat's rights have been infringed in this case, we are asked to go further and rule on the constitutionality of the regime. Now, you have to answer that or face the consequences. That's why we're asking you these questions. Yes, no, uh, and, uh, and, and I have, uh, my answer is uh, really uh, that the court will have to weigh, um, the, the, the other thing is that a judge in that circumstance where he only has one allegation, he may take other steps, he may dismiss the case, he may, uh, he may decide that the issue is unreasonable that the certificate is unreasonable. So at the end of the day, um, we don't have enough before us today to really assess the constitution, you know, the, the constitutionality of these provisions on the basis of that. But, uh, but if we are, and I think it's part uh, of what we have to do to, uh, today to consider the constitutionality of the scheme itself, can we decide that, that without considering this particular uh, prov uh, provision and its, and its potential impact on the scheme itself. You may certainly consider mm -hmm. that, uh, but it would be, uh, I would suggest, um, it would be, um, it would not uh, be in keeping, I think, with Parliament's intent here to try to provide a balanced regime, uh, a balanced regime uh, which provides uh, protection for the individual. Well, and the one, one of the issues is precisely whether the presence of these prov provisions might create such an imbalance that, uh, that we, considering the overall situation, that we would say, that we might say hypothetically, 
well, that, uh, that uh, scheme as a whole doesn't pass constitutional muster. And, and that may be. Um, if I may move to the abusive process, because I see my time is very limited, um, I may move to the process, the abusive process issue, which was also a very important one. Uh, and um, the ministers say that the destruction of CSIS's investigatory material did not per se constitute a violation of Mr. Harkett's right to know the case and to respond to it, absent a finding of prejudice. The Court of Appeal erred by not deferring to this finding, this assessment, which we say was a finding of fact, which uh, should not have been overturned, uh, absent a palpable and overriding error. Uh, so therefore, since there was no breach of Section 7, there should not have been a breach, uh, there should not have been an ordering of the exclusion of those summaries. Now, um, the, the Court of Appeals' decision uh, is not supported uh, by this Court's jurisprudence, uh, certainly either uh, by the decision in Sharkawi II or by other cases such as Law and Jelland, uh, which, deal that, which suggests that even in the criminal context, one needs to find a finding of prejudice to the right to know the case and to respond to it, and in the criminal uh, context, the right to uh, make full answer and defense. One must find finding of prejudice to that right. How, how can we, or how could Mr. Harkat assess prejudice? I mean, we don't have, if we had originals and we were able to compare them, then we'd be able to say there was no prejudice or, or some prejudice or whatever because we could verify that the summaries were correct and accurate and fair. But without the originals, you can't assess prejudice. I think this is the point. Uh, so just to blithely say there's no prejudice, this is, a, I think, a problem in your case you might wish to address. But Mr. Justice Noel wasn't blithe in saying there was no prejudice. He reviewed carefully all of the evidence that was before him. He reviewed the summaries. He reviewed the evidence in the close. But as a matter of logic, and, and I know Justice Noel did it very, very careful job on this case, but as a matter of logic, how can any judge say there was no prejudice without having a look at the original source material? But there are some circumstances uh, where the original material is no longer available. It's not available. It's gone. It's disappeared. It's been destroyed. It's been lost. It's been mislaid. And even in the criminal context, the court has said uh, that you still have to have a finding of prejudice to the right to make full answer in defense before you actually conclude but that there is a breach to the duty of a fair it's, trial. Uh, it's always the same question. How do you assess prejudice without having access to this, uh, to this material? And this court, though, however, in Sharkawi II, this court did consider the question of prejudice, and this court said uh, that it would have to be uh, the designated judge who would have to make that assessment. This court left it for that designated judge very clearly in paragraph 46 of that judgment. Uh, the court said that the so you the court said in Sharkawi too that the destruction was wrong. That we shouldn't have been destroying those uh, materials. But the court also said that all the, that didn't make ongoing investigations unlawful. 
so that meant ongoing investigations such as this one and presumably others were still lawful and that it had to then go back to the designated judge. And at 46, you said that the judge would then have to assess the seriousness of the consequences, which could vary in light of all the information in his possession, his or her possession. And that the notes were not available could be a relevant factor, you said, but not determinative in, any, in every case. So our position... But I think that in the passage, the, the emphasis isn't really on the question we were putting. The court saying, well, you could have some uh, material that's not backed up, but you have to look at the consequences of using that material as well. But be that as it may. The, 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 the tapes don't exist. Uh, so the, the best that can be done is that we have a judge uh, who and, 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 and security uh, cleared special advocates who are in the closed hearing representing the, the Mr. Harkett's interest. And in that closed hearing, those ad, special advocates are uh, examining and challenging the reliability of those uh, summaries, not sorry, of the summaries of the reports that were made. There were reports made of the intercepted conversations. So there aren't tapes, but there are reports. So the special advocates are in a position to be arguing that those reports are not adequate or, or, or at the end of the day, as a result of that analysis, the designated judge is able to judge that based on what he knows of all of the evidence, uh, that those uh, reports are accurate or reliable given what he knows. Don't forget there was a great deal of cross-examination and evidence in the closed on how those reports were made, how they were put together. That closed evidence went into assessing and informing the designated judge as to the reliability of the reports. He didn't accept them carte blanche. They weren't presented simply uh, without explanation, and there was a great deal of explanation uh, in the closed hearing with respect to the actual production of those reports. Let me, and if I could interrupt that, for, yes, for a moment, just to understand your position. If you go to paragraph 77 of Cherkawi 2, as I understand it, this court sent the matter back to the, the judge in the face of the destruction of the originals to make a call on the issue of prejudice. And so the court in doing so, it seems to me, correct me if you think I'm wrong, was not saying there's an automatic prejudice that can never be overcome because how can you know? How can a Mr. Harkat know what he couldn't possibly know? It, it seems to me that the court, this court was saying it may be open to the designated judge to make a call on reliability <clears throat> that <clears throat> excuse me, will satisfy him or her that there is no prejudice here um, beyond the speculative type of prejudice that Mr. Harkat is alleging. What's your position on that? But is, I, is, that's exactly what happened here. It did go. The designated judge had to make that determination of prejudice, and he made it. But it seems to me to be in keeping with the directive in Sharkawi 2. He's in the best position to make that assessment, and so he made it. Uh, Mr. Harkat brought an abusive, mo uh, abusive process and sought a stay on those very same grounds. And so I think 
what the designated judge did was entirely in keeping with, with both the paragraph you're reading and the position that the ministers are advancing as being the, the preferred interpretation of what should be happening. I think, too, it would be helpful, just following up on Justice mm -hmm. Moldaver's question, the Court of Appeal didn't agree with what he did. Perhaps you could tell us why the Court of Appeal was wrong and why the designated judge was right? Uh, there are two, re two reasons why the Court of Appeal was wrong. Uh, we we uh, submit that the question of prejudice is a finding of fact that should have been deferred to, absent a palpable and overriding error. This was a judge who was seized of the matter for two and a half years. He had a, a very thorough understanding uh, of the evidence, which was very complicated, both in closed and in open. It was a complicated evidentiary uh, record. And Justice Noel had a very st uh, strong grasp and a familiarity and an expertise, as all trial judges have an expertise. And it is the position of the ministers that, as a trial judge, that finding of fact of prejudice should have been deferred to because he was in the best position to make it. Uh, secondly, the, the, the Court of Appeal had made a number of uh, mistakes in terms of its apprehension of the record, uh, which uh, leads uh, to the conclusion that it wasn't as, that, that, it, that it just misapprehended the record. And so, therefore, it misapprehended the evidence of John. It considered that John gave just very general evidence despite the fact that it was uh, more complex. Uh, and so it seemed to be a, um, too general uh, and an erroneous. Uh, it was not in a better position as a court reviewing the file and the record to make a decision on prejudice. The trial judge should have made that decision on prejudice because he had the expertise and the knowledge to make that. I think I've answered that. Now, in my remaining two minutes, we didn't talk about Section 1. I, I, it's not the right order, but perhaps we can uh, jump back to, to the constitutionality in my remaining minute or two. If I may speak uh, with respect to Section 1, it is the position of the ministers that should this court uh, find that the scheme uh, violates Section 7, that it should be saved uh, because it is uh, a section uh, that is um, fully demonstrated and saved by Section 1. The, the protection of national security information is pressing and substantial. It's a pressing and substantial purpose. The law is proportionate in its effects, and it minimally impairs the rights to a fair judicial process, and it is reasonably tailored uh, to uh, There were other schemes are not more favorable, as been, has been suggested. A number of other schemes have been suggested. Uh, the CERC, the Security Intelligence Review Committee, or, uh, committee model has been suggested. That doesn't protect the rights of the individual as much as the special advocate because the, that model, the council is the council for that committee and not council uh, with the interest with uh, who is designated and tasked with protecting the rights of the named person. The special advocate is specifically designated to protect the rights of the named person. Uh, unlike the Security Intelligence Review Committee Council, whose, uh, whose uh, job and task is to represent the committee. 
uh, certainly uh, the other uh, section, the other alternative schemes that have been suggested that we say do not minimally impair is the Canada Evidence Act. Uh, we suggest that that would not uh, better protect the rights of the, uh, of the persons uh, because in that case, although the judge may order, the federal court judge may order the release of information, uh, there are a number of caveats uh, and, uh, and um, the Attorney General at the end of the day has the discretion. Some of the, some of the interveners suggest that uh, the special advocates should be given the opportunity to cross-examine uh, uh, human sources. And I take it that hasn't occurred, or at least, well, I don't know whether it's occurred. I guess I shouldn't say anything about that here. I think you jumped their eager beaverness. But uh, my, my question is this. When you're looking at uh, minimal impairment, uh, might the opportunity to cross-examine uh, sources not be a, a, a less impairing way of of, of handling this whole matter than, than not? The, the question of cross-examining sources a very, is a very, very important one, but it is tied to the question of the class privilege, and I will let uh, Mr. Freider address that because uh, that is his area. Uh, and Could you just give us your interpretation? I'll try one more time yes. of 83-1i. Is it your position that that provision should be read as saying, yes, the judge can look to information that has not been disclosed in coming to his or her decision, but that the decision can't be based solely on evidence that has been kept from the named person? Mm -hmm. Or is it your position that that provision allows a judge to make his or her decision based completely on information that has been kept from the named person, uh, e even in a general way. What, what, how do you interpret, how do that, you ask us to interpret that provision? You have to interpret it flexibly uh, and the, on, so that there has to be the ability of the designated judge to make a decision uh, that on information that was not disclosed, whether that doesn't it, sorry that doesn't answer the question. I'm accepting for the yes. purposes of this question that, that the judge can do that make a decision on some undisclosed information. Can the judge make a decision on, on all, all only only all? Right. And, and I think at the uh, uh, I'm no further ahead than my earlier answer to that, which is that this court shouldn't base the constitutionality of this scheme uh, on that hypothetical as that is not before it and that at the end of the day the fulsomeness of this record and the fact that the court should always look to the evidence uh, uh, in any constitutional challenges, the, rec the evidence uh, really is so very important and it is in this case too. Is your point that the 83I confers a discretion it is always a discretion. Because yes. it says may, and if the court right. shouldn't assume that a judge would exercise his or her discretion in an unconstitutional manner. 
The judge may always has the judge always has two obligations: one to ensure that the person is fully informed, as reasonably informed, not not fully, as reasonably informed as possible, and second to protect the national security and the person. Uh, those are the two obligations between them, and that's why it's very difficult to deal with a hypothetical because it is it is really up to the judge to and the special advocates and their input. They will. Uh, be able to uh, perhaps come up with solutions and summaries that will satisfy. What if um, there's a clash or an impossibility to satisfy the requirement, A, that the person be reasonably informed, I'm talking at 83E, yes. and the other requirement that the judge not include anything that would be injurious to national security. What if he, the judge concludes that she cannot satisfy both of those which trumps? It's an interpretation question. Yes, and, and I think at the end of the day, uh, it has to be the national security uh, interests. But it, it, again, it depends on the facts. Well, can I ask you and this? Because it depends on what the scenario is. Perhaps can I ask, it's a very serious, dangerous thing. Can I ask you a follow-up? If the judge concludes that uh, she has to uh, uh, allow, uh, she has to uh, put the interest uh, in national security and safety above, and that the cost is that the person will not be reasonably informed, is the judge's alternative not acting in accordance with the Constitution to simply, uh, to, what is the judge's the alternative? The judge's alternative is to uh, declare that the certificate is not reasonable. Uh, and, and that is an alternative, and she can, she can say that the, the certificate has not, not been found to be reasonable, and that is an alternative. Or a constitutional challenge could be brought, uh, and she may declare that the section is, you know, that she finds this unconstitutional. I there think maybe that's there. where we are now. But, but you're not there now because you don't have that record before you. When that so what we see is this cascading series of constitutional challenges of this certificate regime. In the meantime, nobody knows quite where they are. But this, yes, but the court has been very clear that the Constitution must be interpreted, uh, you know, very clearly rooted in the evidentiary record. Uh, and it cannot just uh, be based on hypotheticals. And the worst-case scenario hypothetical should not be the hypothetical that, in fact, uh, determines the constitutionality of this particular provision where there is much discretion and much uh, disclosure being given. And with that, I really promised my... Uh, Chief Justice, Justices, um, I will uh, address two issues on which we are the appellant. Um, and if I have time at the end, perhaps I'll come back and try and help you with Section uh, 83.1i uh, just a little bit more. But our two issues on which we're uh, appealing are the remedy issue, uh, the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal to exclude two summaries of conversations and refer the matter back to uh, Justice Noel for further proceedings. And secondly, the informer issue, the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal that CSIS informers 
are protected by a case-by-case -case privilege and not a class privilege. I'm going to deal very briefly with the first issue because of the importance of the second. Uh, as Ms. Kazmarczyk has already argued, um, there's, uh, our general position is that there was no justification for interfering with Justice Noel's finding that the admission of the summaries would occasion prejudice. However, if you agree with the Federal Court of Appeal approach, which was an attempt at a halfway house of excluding two summaries, there was no justification, we say, for sending it back to Justice Noel for further proceedings, uh, which are already overly protracted. Uh, why do I say that? You have to read the two summaries. They're at, uh, in our condensed book at tab 31. They are two very short paragraphs with very slight assistance to the minister's case. I, I think one of the problems is that not everybody is quite on board with it only being two. Uh, two. Y yes, but uh, all I can address here really is if you get to that place. Um, our general position is with respect to prejudice. I leave our argument uh, as Ms. Kuzmarczyk put it, and in our factum, but on those two, uh, if you get to that place, there's no justification for further proceedings because the Court of Appeal had the power to say that couldn't possibly affect the case. And in, with the greatest respect, this Court has the power under Section 45 of the Supreme Court Act to make the order they should have made, and that is simply to dismiss the appeal. Now, with respect to the informer uh, issue, our position sorry, just, with just Sorry, just before you go on, yeah. I've got to be clear in light of my colleague's question to you. Um, did the Court of Appeal make it clear that they were only talking about those two conversations? Is that what this is being sent back on? Or did the Court of Appeal somehow have in mind that it will be for Justice Noel to decide the privy issue based on whatever further information he is given at, a, at the return hearing. And this is where I'm confused. Well, and uh, I admit that the, the Court of Appeals' reasons are not completely clear. The way we interpret them is all they have asked, uh, the only thing they appeared to us to exclude were two summaries. And they've asked uh, Justice Noel to look again at the allegations and see what value they have, that they weren't capable of doing that. That's the way we read their judgment, and we say they could have done that themselves, as you could. With respect to informers, uh, our position is that the Federal Court of Appeal got it wrong in holding that CSIS informers enjoy only a case-by-case -case privilege, not a class pr privilege. Justice Noel largely got it right, uh, though we disagree with him that this is, in any sense, a new privilege. Uh, and we also disagree with him uh, on his treatment of the exception to the privilege issue. Now, just the, to be clear, the effect of, of, a, of a class privilege would be that be a whole class of documents that the special advocates would never see? No, that's uh, what my friends are saying, and that's completely wrong. Oh, okay. The informer privilege prote protects the identity and any information that would allow you to discover the identity. 
it doesn't preclude information uh, coming from the informants. And that information uh, is, is what you get and what you need to, uh, to challenge the case. Um, but maybe you could explain to me how a case-by-case -case privilege would undermine the safety of the informer. Well, the case-by-case uh, -case privilege is, as a result of this Court's judgments, there's very few areas of the law where you've devoted as much attention to a single privilege as to the informant privilege, and you've accepted time and again that it has to be a class privilege because a case-by-case -case privilege uh, uh, is contrary to the principles that underlie the privilege, which is to encourage people to come forward and protect the people who do. Uh, in, uh, in the words of the U.S. Supreme Court, if you leave it in that sort of way, the, the informers will close up like a clam. But, but may I just ask you this? One of the interveners, Mr. Norris, makes the point that you don't need to create a, 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 any kind of privilege, the common law privilege. He's, if I read him correctly, he says common law privilege arises because there's no or re relatively little said in statutes. But here, uh, the statute is quite clear as to what can and can't be uh, disclosed to the individual. And the, the statute says what has to be said. Why, why do we have to talk about common law privilege? Well, because, and I say you're, the, the full answer to that is this Court's judgment in Regina and Bazzi, where uh, Section 37 of the Canada Evidence Act sets up a case-by-case -case weighing procedure for the consideration of privilege, yet this Court said, in the face of uh, that clear wording, that the informer privilege in its full class privilege sense applies. So uh, this, this, this statute... Well, but if, it, the, if the statute says that where national security or safety of person is impaired, the judge won't disclose, isn't that, why wasn't that enough? Well, because if, if you, uh, on the Court of Appeals interpretation, that leaves it open to a case-by-case -case weighing. We say that's insufficiently protective of uh, informers because the answer to the informer who comes in the door offering information uh, that has to be given is if he says, are you going to protect me? The answer has to be yes. It's not, well, maybe yes and maybe no, depending on uh, what a judge thinks sometime down the road. Well, but, our, but the jurisprudence of the court in National Post and, uh, and so forth really limits the notion. I mean, what, can I ask you, if, if, if class privilege really is all that important, why didn't Parliament include it in the legislation? Well, with respect, the answer to that is this Court's judgment in blood trial, which is uh, if you're going to affect a privilege, it's got to be done in clear and unequivocal language. That's what you said in Blood Tribe. And here, when, the, when Parliament wanted to affect solicitor-client privilege, it said so in the, in the very same provisions of the IRPA. said nothing about affecting informer privilege. And in my respectful submission, Parliament has to have been taken to, to not intending to interfere with the existing privilege. You help me out factually with something or practically with something. Does the judge get to see 
the names of the informant and so on? I mean, when, when the Crown, take it for a moment that there's no blanket privilege, but does the judge get to see this? The name, does the judge get to know the name and so on? The judge, uh, in my respectful submission, doesn't have to see the name. It, it factually here, yes. Can the judge see the name? The judge, uh, well, it depends on whether a foundation has been laid to cause the judge to want to make that sort of inquiry. Otherwise, it's a rule that uh, protects the informant from the world, essentially. I, I understand. I? No, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I, well, I, okay. I understand that, but what I'm yeah. trying to get at is this act says that the special counsel gets to see everything the judge does. Isn't that right? Yes, that's, so, uh, well. Don't we have to look at this in a more nuanced way and, and sort of say Parliament has kind of directed its mind to it and along the lines that Mr. Norris perhaps is talking about? And, uh, and provide for disclosure to the special advocates? I say no, no. And in fact, to go back to the uh, question Justice Rothstein asked my friend, about cross-examination, which is uh, put up by the other side as, as the panacea here, it is a wholly impractical uh, suggestion in this context. For this reason, you're talking about bringing an informant into a closed national security hearing. Informants are not choir boys. They're not good Samaritans. They wouldn't get security clearance in all likelihood. And then you're going to ask special advocates who have all this national security information to cross-examine them and disclose to these people uh, more national security information because that's inevitably what will happen in cross-examination. In my respectful submission, that whole suggestion is, is uh, completely impractical. Now, with respect to what the difference between a class privilege and a case-by-case -case privilege, here's the effect of what the, uh, the Court of Appeal has done. The person who tells the drug squad that their neighbor is dealing marijuana has more protection in Canadian law than the person who tells uh, CSIS that their neighbor is setting up a terrorist training camp. In my respectful submission, uh, there, there is no common sense in that. Can I ask you this, though? If we assume there's no blanket immunity and we're looking at it case by case, there are two different issues here. One is what gets disclosed to the named person, what goes public. And that test is in Section 83. What I would like your submissions on Reasonably informed, yes. And um, you, you protect information that uh, um, would jeopardize national security or the safety of a person. Um, so my question is, what would be the test that would be applied in determining a case-by-case -case review for the closed circle, for the judge, for the special advocate? Section 83 deals with disclosure to the public, to the named person. Would it yes. be the Wigmore test? The Federal Court of Appeals seems to suggest that it's the Section 83 test. Some of the parties suggest it's the Canada Evidence Act test, a public immunity, interest immunity test. So I'd like your submissions on if there is no blanket immunity, what, how would we assess whether the named source should be disclosed to the judge and the special advocate? Is it Wigmore? Is it the Canada Evidence Act? What's a test? 
Okay. If, if I'm understanding your question, I don't agree with the premise of it. I the, understand. The, the idea is not uh, the privilege doesn't pre prevent them from getting information. The information, the, what the privilege protects, whether it's a, a case by case or a class privilege, is information that discloses the identity. The fact is, they did get information. Uh, what they didn't get was any information that would uh, disclose the identity in open proceedings. And uh, as an unusual matter of fact here, uh, the judge gave greater disclosure in, in the closed proceedings. But um, I see by the look in your face, I'm not answering you. But no, I'm asking what the you, test should be if it's a, if it's a person, if the, you look at it case by case. Well, but the test for disclosure is, the, is to give the named person all the information that's to reasonably... The special, yeah, sorry. To, You're not the, special advocates, yes. the special advocates are getting uh, more information. Uh, they shouldn't get the identity. They did here. But... They get the, as much information as the judge can give them without compromising national security. It's not a, a difficult standard to apply in my respectful submission. Can I, can I just take you back to the uh, question of cross-examination? I just want to be very clear. You say the problem, or a problem, with cross-examination is that the special advocate in the course of cross-examination will disclose to, to the, 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 the source uh, information that information that they have about national security or perhaps danger to another person or something like that, and that that's the reason that you can't have cross-examination. That, that's what you said. If yes, that, that is what I said. Are there yes. other reasons that you say would justify not permitting cross-examination by the special advocate? Absolutely. And they're the reasons Justice Noel gave in his judgment. He accepted evidence that that would deter informers from coming forward. And that is a finding he made, and it's subject to a palpable and overriding standard of review. Well, but we're talking about people within the circle of privilege. I mean, you say that the judge is entitled to that information, yes. so you can't, you can't promise to the informer that the judge won't get the information, and if the judge can get it, then the, then the, the, the special advocate. With respect, they're getting the information. They're not getting the identity. You mean uh, the judge can't get the identity? Well, the judge, uh, I don't see, except in the unusual cases, why the judge needs the identity. Well, no, but can't, legally, can the judge get the identity? Well, they might have to get the identity okay. in determining... So if the judge might have to get the might. identity, then that becomes disclosable to the special advocate, doesn't it? Well, only, only uh, we're talking about a very, very odd case yeah, in, in, so. in my uh, submission. Maybe so, but still, I'm just trying to understand the legal... The legal way to deal with all of this. Well, the, the the focus with respect has to be on the provision of the information because it's the information that you need to test the reliability of the uh, uh, of the case against. Well, uh, well, some, uh, sometimes, Mr. Freighter, uh, to assess the reliability of information, you have got to to know where it does come from, uh, come from. Yes, and, and in fact, uh, what was given here, and you'll see this if you look at the polygraph decision, uh, 
the judge describes what was given uh, to assess the reliability of uh, the various uh, information. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we have a pretty clear example of this case of uh, one situation where I think an inf an, an, well, a person was not reliable and was, uh, and was presented to the court below at first as being reliable. Well, with respect, you're dealing with the polygraph. Uh, I see I'm far past my time. I'm, I'm quite happy to I was wondering when you were going to notice. Uh, uh, I knew it would be when there was a tough question. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's, an it's an excellent question and an answerable question. I, I'm happy to give the answer if you want to hear it. Uh, well, uh, the, you have to read the polygraph judgment. Yes, uh, there, there, there was a mistake made, but at the end of the day, uh, Justice Noel did not regard that as... Be assured that I have read it. Yeah, but uh, Justice Noel's conclusion about that was that uh, the, the default that was made did not matter a great deal at the end of the day. It was the ministers actually who disclosed that information and when the judge conducted a full inquiry, uh, he was satisfied that uh, no great prejudice had arisen as a result of it. Thank you. Uh, I'll call on Mr. Hubbard for the Attorney General of Ontario. Chief Justice, Justices, um, the AG of Ontario is here to make three points, and uh, listening to the questions of Mr. Freighter, he needs as much help as he can on the three points we're going to address. Um, firstly, uh, f firstly we, 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 we support the legislation's constitutionality, but we want to deal with the fact that it is – there should be only one informed privilege, a class privilege. And so the, court of, the Federal Court of Appeal got it wrong in suggesting that if they'd have upheld a class privilege suggestion that the constitutionality might have been uh, suspect. They, they say that it, uh, we've addressed that in our factum at uh, paragraphs 34 and 35 of our factum. And secondly, we take the position that special advocates should not be allowed, if it is a class privilege, that special advocates should not be allowed to, to cross-examine the informants. And the third point, and it's, sort of arises from some of the questions is we're concerned here because of what the court says in this case may bleed into the criminal context. And we want, we want certainty with respect to what informers are. And we propose to address this from the vantage point of the, the CI, the informer, and the lawyer who perhaps is advising the, the CI. I think it's best addressed in that context. And so one of the points that we want to make is to draw this distinction that some of the members have referred to Mr. Norris's fact. First of all, when informers come through and want, propose to give information, this Court's judgments since Liepert and following have said that they're cloaked with the class privilege to protect their safety. So informers come forward, let's just imagine this and say, uh, I want to be an informer, but I don't want to be a witness. I don't want to testify. My life is in danger. I'm worried about my family. Well, we're back to this confusion about what's covered by the privilege. Mr. Frader says the information would be open. It's just their identity, so we'd never get to the point you're describing. No, we're, we're, no but I want to, I'm going to get to that point, but I just want to make it clear that informers don't want to be witnesses. 
That's why they're informers. So any suggestion that informers should be, will be cross-examined as witnesses by anybody. That's a strange proposition, uh, unless you have some evidence for it. Informers don't want to be witnesses. That's why they're informers. Informers become, stay in, they say we don't want to be witnesses. If everybody could say, well, you're going to be a witness, that's why they would say we don't want, we're not going to give you the, inf the information then. So, so what I'm suggesting in the calculus is this idea that if, if, for example, an informer goes to a lawyer and says, I, I, I want to give information to deceases or the police, uh, would I be protected? Presently, the law says that you could not be ca called as a witness. Even the handler could not be cross-examined on whether who the informer is. If you, if you read the judgment in Perez and Lysing, Justice Sharon deals with that and affirms what this court has said. So the, the, so the informer's absolute protection. But the result of the ruling in the Federal Court of Appeal would say the lawyer, if they were giving advice to the informer, would have to say, well, if it's a criminal case, you're probably cloaked with the privilege. You have absolute privilege. Subject to innocence at stake, which itself is a high threshold. But if the information goes to CSIS and there's a security case, certificate case, then you might have to be produced as a witness. You might get to be cross-examined by the special advocate. If this is all premised in the first instance to the informer, the informers are going to say, no, we, we're not going to give that information. We don't want to be witnesses. Our lives are in, in danger. And so these two questions bleed into each other. In other words, this notion that informers are going to be cross-examined and subject to, in the, in the certificate case, when they're not in the criminal case, is a problem for informers. It, we, it, it undermines the vitality of the rule. And so if the, just to, again to give the example, presently on, on this record, if you go to the RCMP and say, I want to talk about a terrorist bombing, you're fine and covered. You're not likely to be a witness. And in fact, the, the cloak is usually premised on the informer saying, I don't want to be a witness. If you, presently, if you go to CSIS, the CSIS agent would say, well, I can't give you absolute protection because I got to tell you that you may be called as a witness in the special hearing and you may be cross-examined by the, the special advocate. And on this last point, I just want to make a few points. This court has made a distinction in the, in the recent case dealing with the amicus that amicus is a friend of the court. Amicus has a duty to the court. In the context of that case, primarily dealing with funding, the court has made the point that even amicus in cases don't get everything. They've got to be a focused inquiry and of assistance. In this case, on the legislation, the special advocate has a duty to the main party. He has to protect solicitor-client relationships, although he doesn't have, uh, the, sorry, solicitor-client communications, although he doesn't have a solicitor-client Relationship, in effect, special advocate owes a duty to the named party. Amicus wouldn't necessarily be involved in the pri privilege calculus, even though they're a friend of the court. If the Federal Court of Appeal is right, special advocates would get more access to confidential information than amicus. We've addressed this in our factum. Indirectly, we say that can't be right. 
So, again, I suggest that that doesn't mean that the special advocates are denuded of all of their, of all their responsibilities and powers. They can look at everything else. There may be other witnesses that are called, people who have agreed to be witnesses that are called in the special hearings that can't be revealed to the, to the, uh, to the named party, that the, that the special advocate, for example, could cross-examine. It may be that witnesses are prepared to come forward. People are in a, in a, for example, terrorist cell who say, look, I'll testify in the close proceeding. They're not informers. So that's another class of person that could be cross-examined by the special advocate. But true informers want to remain informers. Now, it may be the state in some instances can persuade them and say, well, we really need your evidence. And so it's this last point also I want, to, I, want to, I want to talk about, because there should be no connection between the use to which the information is put and the protection of the informer. In other words, informers aren't told, well, you know, uh, that's interesting information, but if you appreciate that it might be admissible in a certificate hearing, you might not be covered. They're, they're just simply giving information. They have no control over what the state does with the information. So I think there's this blur blurring of, of problems. Informers want to be protected. The fact that the state uses it for a warrant and they are protected is one thing. If, if the state uses it for such a security case, it would result in, in them not well, being protected. There is, there is some kind of protection because uh, his name will not be given to the named person, for instance. True. And uh, on what basis are you saying that the informant will not... Uh, come forward to testify. What, what's, the, what's the basis of your, of your statement? Well, there, there was evidence called before Justice Noel. Uh, the expert evidence was called about informers drying up if, if this was the case. Uh, that's referred to in, in uh, Mr. Frater's uh, and Ms. Uh, Kuzmachik's factum. And don't you think the protection provide Vince, those informant, to come forward? Uh, well, again, you know, quite often the Crown would like to call informers as witnesses uh, in order to make out the case. Uh, the Crown can't do that, and the, the position of the, of the Crown is that the defense shouldn't be in any better position simply on the basis of need to know. It's just the flip side. A lot of informers would be very useful witnesses, uh, but they refuse to be witnesses, and sometimes the Crown has to live with those consequences. Yeah, but here the informer's evidence is before... The that's what the government is producing, is the informer's evidence. So they're, they get to put in their direct evidence, they just don't get to... That's right. They're, they're putting in evidence just in the same way as the informer information is in warrants. But it doesn't necessarily mean that on the review of the warrant, that everything is disclosed to the defense counsel. They, some information, the judicial summaries, there may be all kinds of things that are still re re reviewed and that can be challenged in terms of reliability and so on and so forth. Well, uh, I just want to understand this. Mr. Frader says the privilege would only go to identity and everything else would go in. I'm getting the impression from you that you take a broader view of this, which, which, which leads to an underlying difficulty. We seem to be creating a new thing here, and we've always said we shouldn't, at least recently, create new privileges. But you seem to be getting a completely uh, no. different You You seem to be saying nothing could be done, there couldn't be questions asked, uh, that that it goes beyond identity. I'm simply saying that they cannot get anything that, it's not just the name, as, as uh, uh, Chief Justice, you said in Leapert, it's anything that may tend to reveal. 
Any, the identity. It's, so you it's agree strict. with Mr. Frader on Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay. It's not, but I'm saying it's not just the name, it's anything that may tend to reveal. Well, that's all. It, it's identity. It's always identity. And so they can get anything other than information that may tend to reveal the identity. And so I just want to say that, the, again, the criminal law in this area that as a result of the, the, the cases of this court is pretty clear and we're very concerned about any, any sort of inroads from language in, in this case impacting on that with respect to whether you, you know, defense counsel or we get amicus in the criminal cases or special advocates, because so far this court has made it clear that special, even amicus are not to be appointed as a rule, and even when they are appointed, they have a very finite role in terms of a specific facts. And so we're trying to, we're trying to suggest to the court consistency in this if it's a class privilege. Now, of course, our submission hinges on the point that the legislation has not indirectly or directly abrogated the common law privilege. Sorry, Chief Justice, could I just ask this question? Yes. In, in the context of the criminal case, as you quite properly put it, the informer doesn't want to be a witness, but does the Crown, can the Crown lead that person's evidence as original evidence in the case to prove its case? No. I don't think so. No, well, no, that, and isn't that a huge difference here where you're trying to rely on this person's evidence? Yes, in fact, and we've made that point, that we can see that, that generally speaking in the criminal context, the informant information is going into not the case to meet. It's not going into the what we call the main event. It's usually to do with subsidiary issues such as the warrant. And we've said if it did, it would go to innocence's take potentially. But even then, there's thresholds that have to be met. It's the minimally impaired and so on and so forth. And you would end up having to call the former as a witness once that threshold is, is. And so that's the nub. And we've tried to say that the special advocate's role compensates for that difference in this context. And the question is, how much do they get? How much do they get? And uh, we say that Bassey in this court uh, i just finish. I, I know my time is, is up, but Bassey, this court, said defense counsel don't get to be part of the pool of information. And all we're really saying is that for all intents and purposes in this case, the special advocates are defense counsel, albeit that they're security clear. That's, and to be consistent, we say that this court's already determined this, case, this question in the Bassey context for the obvious reasons, the conflict and, and, and their obligations and so on and so forth. Thank you. The court will rise for its morning recess. Mr. Weber. Uh, I'm going to start um, box on Mr. Weber will address um, some of the issues. I'm going to speak to the constitutionality and the privilege issue, and Mr. Weber will be addressing the Section 7 issues that arise from the destruction of the uh, material and, uh, and the remedy. In dealing first uh, with the context, uh, my friends uh, referred to the issue of it's an immigration proceeding. And I think it's fundamental to remember that although it is true that non-citizens do not have an unqualified right to remain in Canada, 
they do have a right to a fair process. And the context is extremely important here. It is the interests at stake, not the legal label that determines the principles of fundamental justice. And the context in this case is important. It's the potential removal to the place of mistreatment. It's a decision being made on secret material. It's a hearing before a federal court judge. One only has to look at the interest in this case from the interveners and from the public to know that the context is important, that it's, it transcends this case. Our administration of justice is being viewed. How we conduct our administration of justice is being viewed by this case. And so context is very important. There is no question that Mr. Harkat's Section 7 rights are engaged. And perhaps just briefly, I take a minute to take a look at what this court held in Sharkawi and what it didn't hold. It held that it was the interest at stake, not the legal label. That at the Section 7 stage of the analysis, the test is, is the process fundamentally unfair? And our position is that this process is. It's not, has the government got the right balance? That, that can be taken a look at at Section 1, but not at Section 7. The bottom line, according to this court, is that security concerns cannot excuse unfairness. Yes, the context does include some administrative constraints, but balanced against that, the court made clear that the potential chilling consequences are also part of the context. The court indicated that the principle of fundamental justice then and still remains the principle of fundamental justice when one looks at the conduct, context is the named person must know and have the opportunity to meet the case so a decision can be rendered on the facts and law. And our position, very simply put, is that with this new regime, the named person still doesn't know the case, the named person still can't meet it, and although the special advocate has a better knowledge of the case, depending on the interpretation of what information gets the special advocate, the special advocate may know the case, but the restrictions on the special advocate are such that the special advocate cannot meet the case, cannot challenge the case. This court held that a fair hearing means more than being informed. It means being able to challenge a case. Meeting a case does not, or challenging a case, does not mean I didn't do it. It doesn't just mean you're given the opportunity to deny. It doesn't mean you're just given the opportunity to respond and say no. Meeting a case must be meaningful. It must be able to challenge. This court held in paragraph 54 in Sharkawi that the reason you well, need this Well, in the specific uh, context of this case, in the context of uh, 
the situations where there are security interests, what, uh, what, kind, what kind of scheme, in your opinion, would meet uh, section, the requirements of Section 7? It may be impossible. Frankly, it just may be impossible to come up uh, with a scheme that's going to balance those two. But what I can say is this scheme doesn't. That's for sure. Uh, to try and design a, a scheme that would, uh, frankly, is, is beyond me. Well, is, is your proposal that we should simply throw overboard any security uh, concerns and uh, simply try to apply the regular uh, criminal law model? Uh, my, concern, uh, uh, my position is not going to take the court that far, although what I would say is that the substantial substitute has to be a substantial substitute. And the, the, the named person has to be informed and they have to have the ability to meet the case both in public and in secret. And this case, this regime doesn't. And I will be coming to Section 83.1i and, and other sections. But this regime just doesn't. Uh, national security concerns trump the accused, uh, not the accused, the named person's interest throughout. Uh, there is no balancing by the, by the court in determining what information can be disclosed. It's a trump card of, of national security. And the special advocates, although they are better than nothing, are unconstitutionally restrained in what they can do. Their limits on communication. Their limits on communication, not just with the named person, but their limits on communication with anyone. Their, effectively, their inability to call a witness, the fact that they're restrained to the material that's presented by one party, means that they are not in a position to do what this court said you're entitled to do, which is to contradict errors, to refute false allegations, Refute does not just mean then say they're false. It means to refute them, to be able to call evidence, to be able to challenge them. But what it sounds to me, though, like what you're saying is uh, what Justice LaBelle referred to as overthrowing the whole scheme. I mean, you're saying, well, the special advocate has to be able to communicate, <clears throat> has to be able to call witnesses. Uh, it sounds to me like you give no weight whatsoever to national security. Can you explain if you are prepared to give some weight to national security, how that, what kind of scheme that would be? At the very least, it has to be a scheme where the, the special advocate has the ability to meet and challenge the case, at the very least. But what does that mean? Does that mean that he is able to take information that would otherwise be confidential on a national security or safety of the person's basis and disclose it to the named individual? He has to be able to take that information and be able to investigate the case so he can refute errors or challenge the case in secret. It oh, may so not, there's it no may, confidentiality to that anymore no, at all? No, I didn't say that, that, but there has to be. So far, I'll use an example. If we're talking about whether the person gets the, the name of uh, an informer, which uh, the ministers say that the special advocate shouldn't even know the name of the informer. If, if you knew the name of the informer, you may be able to, without affecting national security concerns, be able to present other evidence that the ministers haven't about who that informer is. 
other material that could show that that informer is not credible without disclosing any material. So can I just, uh, I mean, I, if you're right uh, and the scheme fails because of the inability to test reliability of evidence that has serious consequences on the security interests of, of the named person, uh, we were, were in Section 1, and then the question is reasonable limits in a free and democratic society. These are obviously concerns that other jurisdictions like the UK have dealt with in trying to balance the competing interests. How does how do their schemes compare with this particular scheme? Okay. And, and what has been found to be to survive uh, court scrutiny? Okay, so um, that's a, a very good question, and one of the reasons that uh, this court is granted intervener status is because the interveners can bring knowledge and expertise to the case that the parties may not have. I have enough difficulty with Canadian law to be able to explain to you the UK law, the law of the rest of the world. And so uh, we're, we're blessed to have the interveners the, from Amnesty present that and explain it because what it seems to be just in looking at those factums is it, it degenerates into a he said, he said. Oh, the UK does this. No, they don't. And uh, I, I, it's very difficult for a court in any issue when you start looking at foreign law to be or foreign practices to make sure you're getting the full record before it. I appreciate that, and I will. And I did see that in the intervenors' factions. I guess I'm trying to get your advice. On, your your statements are very general. So, what specifically is wrong with the scheme? What would need to be changed? to bring it in line with your view of uh, security interests of the, the name person? You know, I, I suppose my starting uh, point is that, you know, this scheme should be just struck, and it, it may be impossible to design another one that does work. It's rarely used. We might question whether we ever need it. But uh, if we are going to look at what, as starting points, things would need, uh, we would need the special advocates to have the ability to meet and challenge a case. They have to have additional powers that they don't have. They have, to, they have to be able to communicate with persons. They have to be able to, they have to be realistically in a position to be able to call evidence and to, and to do things. So, for example, if we took a look at tab tab four in the condensed compendium, of, uh, of the respondent, and, and without without falling into the argument of this just being a, a he said, she said, I do take disagreement with the extent of the material that we were advised as public counsel about what was going on in, in secret uh, in, in my submission that we were advised in a very limited way, and there's some examples here, but if we took a look at tab four, uh, we can see the dilemma with respect to this particular scheme and the clear limitations on the special advocates. And so this is a, a communication following a closed hearing held on May 5th, 2010. And point number four of it says, Mr. Copeland, who is one of the special advocates, sought leave to file public documents, but leave was not granted. What's that about? As, as public counsel, what's going on there? What documents he's trying to file? He's not allowed to file public documents? Point five, the recent emails from Mr. Boxall regarding emails received from Douglas Baum were discussed. 
leave to communicate on these emails was refused. Any decision with regard to such emails is an issue for public counsel. The ministers and, and, their, and their factums say, well, public counsel can communicate at any time on a one-way basis with the special advocates. That is, we're allowed to send them material. We're just not allowed to hear back. So I send material. I send them emails. I don't know what was discussed. Communications denied. I'm looking for help. And the answer I get is it's left back to public counsel. And those emails deal with issues about whether there was a payment to a lawyer and so on and so on. What is, what is public counsel supposed to do with that? Let me ask you a, national, a more domestic question then. One of the things we looked at in Shirkawi 1 was the procedure in the Arar inquiry. Right. How does this procedure that's now in legislative place compare to what the special advocate did or was entitled to do in the Arar procedure? Well, Arar is a quite a different situation. I, I, there wasn't special advocates. Saying. What I would be submitting is that we should not look at the Arar situation or the CERC model or this legislation in isolation and say, is this one better than that? They don't have to be mutually exclusive. In other words, in order for, uh, in order for there to be, uh, in the Arar situation, the, the uh, Commission Council was in t spoke with persons outside uh, the hearing rooms. Uh, and was able to do that without revealing confidential information. Uh, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You could have a special advocate regime where the special advocates were entitled to communicate, uh, provided they didn't reveal the protected information, um, but they weren't required to seek permission, that they had some ability to, to investigate a case, some ability to look into matters above and beyond the material that's given to them. And this is where the fundamental flaw is in, in this regime, is that, yes, the special advocates are, are there in the hearing room, but the, the information base is limited to what the ministers supply. The special advocates don't have the ability, it appears, to be able to go out and add to the information base on which the decision is being made. Yes, they can look at the information supplied and say, oh, maybe it's inconsistent here or there, but they're restricted to what they're given. And the danger of that arises in this case in a very stark way when we can see the, the so-called polygraph issue where when one party is entrusted to put the material together, it was left out that this uh, source had at least according to the original polygraphist, had failed on all questions, and that was left out. And it's not enough to be able to say you can work with the material supply. To challenge a case means I have some evidence to refute that, not just restrict it to them. And this is Stinchcomb. You're, you're essentially saying bring Stinchcomb into this scheme. No, I'm not necessarily saying. I'm saying the special advocates have to have the tools to be able to deal with it. Uh, they have to be able to have realistically the powers to do what the court said that needed to be done, which is to be able to refute false allegations and, very importantly, the court said, challenge the credibility of informants. And if you're going to challenge credibility of informants in a meaningful way, 
then you shouldn't be restricted to a source matrix that the other side presents and said, this is all you need to know about the informant. This will help you. Uh, you can't challenge with that. To challenge you would, at the very least, you'd need to know the name. You might be able to say, that name's a matter of public record. You've left out uh, a number of things about that person. We have other information about that person. Are you objecting to the existence of a privilege period, whether it be class by case by case or uh, categorical? With respect to the special advocates, absolutely. There could be no basis on which to deny the special advocates the, the name or the judge the name of the informant. Absolutely none on which there could be any uh, basis to, to deny that. Um, I, I just can't see any basis. The, the presiding judge seems under sub H of 83 to have a wide discretion to receive or not to receive uh, evidence that in his opinion is reliable and appropriate. Yes. Does the availability of that discretion go any of the distance to meeting the concerns you're raising? Actually, I think the availability of that discretion probably causes the concerns. Um, without trying to be in any way disrespectful, it gets to the point that almost anything's admissible. And uh, there's media articles uh, being filed and so on. And so uh, the discretion in my submission allows, allows almost anything, and certainly at least from the minister's side. But would it also not allow a judge, if faced with evidence that he or she felt was creating an unfairness in the process to exclude that evidence? Well, I think any judge who thinks that evidence is creating an unfairness should exclude it. Uh, this, this provision, I would have thought, gives the judge that discretion. Uh, I wouldn't have thought they'd even need that discretion to exclude evidence for unfairness, I would hope, because um, I would have thought the primary rule of any hearing is that it has to be fair. So that if a judge were confronting the difficulties that you're raising and was convinced they were serious, evidence could be excluded. But then we're left in a situation, are we going to be left in a case-by-case -case situation for the scheme and we have to litigate every single time uh, that this is going to be left to a judge? See, the difficulty is, as public counsel, we don't know what went on. And, and to be told by the ministers or by the judge, not by our own special advocates, but be told by the, the minister or the judge that the special advocates uh, were effective or there was no unfairness, it's really not very helpful to us. Um, and so to leave it to some discretion of the judge to say, oh, in the facts of this case, it, it's unfair, it seems to me not where, not where I'd be submitting we'd be. But I, I do agree that if any judge at any time thinks that something is unfair, then it shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be used. In, in, in looking at Parliament's response with, with the special advocate, which is the centerpiece. It's not the only part of the response. The, the, the legislation comes as a package, but clearly the centerpiece of the response to the substantial substitute uh, is, the, is the special advocate. Um, and what I wish to submit is that we need to make sure that 
better than nothing doesn't mean constitutional. Clearly a special advocate is, is better than nothing, but that doesn't make it constitutional. This should not be a race to the bottom that in the UK they do this or in some other country they do this. The standards that we should be setting should not be the lowest on the world stage. The standards that we should be setting is that we need a fair process, and it needs to be fundamentally fair. The Section 831 I, which is indicates the judge may base a decision on information or other evidence, even if a summary of that information or other evidence is not provided to the permanent resident or foreign national. Uh, it's our position that that section is, for all intents, operative in this case. And that when one takes a look at what, what we now understand to be the, from the ministers, one of the primary allegations, that is that uh, Mr. Harkat operated a guest house for Mr. Katab. And it's interesting that certainly when the, when the security intelligence report, the public one, was given to us, that certainly didn't appear to be the primary allegation. That allegation surfaces uh, April 23, 2009, and this is what we're told. Harkat operated a guest house in the suburb of Peshawar, Pakistan. There is information to suggest, whatever that means, that the guest house may be linked to Ibn Khattab and was used by Mujahideen who were on their way to and from training camps in Afghanistan with the facilitation of Harkat. That's an allegation. Yes, it's an allegation. Just, but, may I just understand? You were given a summary, but you're saying the summary wasn't full enough. Is that the point? We're given allegations. On some things we're given... So, so it wasn't a satisfactory summary. Is that the point? I think what the point is that you have to distinguish between being given an allegation and being given information. You could be told... I, I'm, I, the reason I'm asking the question is that I'm looking at uh, 83-1-I. It says the judge may base a decision on information or other evidence even if a summary of that information or other evidence is not provided. Right. So... I just am trying to understand, are you reading that section to say that it, that it applies even when a summary is given, but the summary isn't good enough? I'm saying that the summary has to be, there, this, in our position, the judge should never base, I mean, this is the most blatant example of a Section 7 violation where a decision can be made and no, you're but not given. But if you are given a summary, yeah. the summary cannot be just being told the allegation. The you must have information or other evidence. And it, it's not just being told the allegation. It's, for example, there's an allegation that he went to Afghanistan. When, where, how, why. But it's not enough to say you, and it's admittedly another analogy to a criminal context, you're charged with murder of someone. In order to be able to challenge that, it's not just enough to be know your charge. What is the basis of that? What is the information? What's the evidence that supports it? And what we're left with is essentially on the primary allegation with respect to Mr. Katab is essentially a bald allegation, at least in public. Maybe there's something else there. Well, is it, 
is that an issue of 83-1-I or 83-1-E? Where, where it says that uh, you have to be reasonably informed of the case made. I think it's an issue with both. Because with respect to 83-1-I, the problem with 83-1-I is the judge has these two duties. The, the one duty is to ensure that we're given a summary of information. But that summary of that information is trumped in the same section by saying it does not include anything that in the judge's opinion would be injurious to national security or endanger the safety of any person if disclosed. So the problem with the summary is that the summary is always trumped by national security. And national security, as we know, in my submission as we know from looking at, is a very, can be a very broad con, uh, concept. And it, from what I'm told, is often overclaimed. And but so it sounds to me like you're under 83, your complaint is under 83 one E, not under 83-1-I. You've been given a summary, but it doesn't reasonably inform you in your submission. Right. I would agree with that, but we're also under 83-1-I, too, because in my submission he's basing the decision on matters for which that we were not and basing. If I understand you, you're saying what you got was not really a summary. It was an allegation, and therefore... It's, it doesn't, it falls on, it could fall under 81, uh, 83i, uh, 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 3i. Um, so it depends how you would characterize. Is that? Great. Yes. Could be either. Uh, with respect to the public hearing, which is the only part that Mr. Weber and I are entitled to proceed in, uh, the public hearing in our submission is, Frankly, it's, it's, it's essentially a facade. There's nothing meaningful happening in the public hearing. The, the witness that the ministers call in public, John, he has no personal knowledge of the case. None. He has read the document, and he's adopting the document as true, and he then gives evidence about what a good job his employer does. If the document was a witness, this would be oath-helping and wouldn't be permitted. How do you cross-examine somebody who has no personal knowledge and is going to stand up and say, I've read it and uh, this is exhaustively facted and we do a good job? That's not, you're not being given an opportunity to meet or challenge that in public. Not at all. And of course, as we hear, as events unfold, he seemed a little bit surprised when it, we, as the hearing goes on, we find out that the documents are not so exhaustively facted and uh, the polygraph material was not put there. And so the, the public hearing uh, involvement of the name person is extremely limited. Uh, with respect, respect to Section 1, I'd like to make the following points. First, that it may just be impossible uh, that it can be saved by Section 1. We know uh, that it's rare that a Section 7 violation could be overridden by Section 1. Uh, and, and frankly, my starting point on, in this case is that it is impossible in this case to do it. Uh, but even if one thought it was theoretically possible, this regime fails the minimal impairment test, and it's not proportional. And the minimal impairment test doesn't mean that you can only choose between a CERC model or a Canada Evidence Act model or a special advocate model. Uh, in my submission, it's true it doesn't have to be a perfect regime, 
but this falls well short of, uh, of perfect. And uh, just for examples with respect to where it's not minimally impairing, one could start with 83.1i, wouldn't be minimally impairing. The non-ability of the judge to balance information of the, <clears throat> of the importance to the accused and the public interest over national security uh, is a problem. The inability for communication by the special advocates are problems. There's a number of matters where this is not minimally impairing. I would like to uh, speak about the privilege issue. What the problem arises most in this case because the ministers want their want their cake and want to eat it too. They want to use the information from the from the informant to prove the case, not as background to investigate, not as background. They want to use it, but then they want to insulate that person from challenge. Well, they'll say, yes, you can challenge the credibility of that informant on what we give you. This is what we're giving you, this, but you can't do anything more than work with what we give you. And in my submission, this court should not be creating a class privilege here for a number of reasons. One, the court has already noted that if a class privilege should be created, it should be done by legislative action. Two, there is an inadequate public evidentiary record here to establish that a class privilege is necessary. The ministers in, in their written materials say that, that we've made sweeping statements about CSIS may not uh, have the experience, they may grant it lately and so on, and don't have the evidentiary. This issue wasn't litigated in public. We didn't have the opportunity to put a public record together. The issue of whether there was a privilege was litigated in secret. Now, it may well be that in order to keep certain things secret, you have to litigate some things in secret. But why would you have to litigate in secret whether there's a necessity to have a privilege for this type of matter? Surely that could be dealt with in a public forum. And there's an inadequate evidentiary record to look at here. We know this matter was looked at it in the Air India inquiry, and you have the materials in Justice Major's recommendation that a class privilege not be created. Altogether, apart from whether there should be a, a class privilege, though, it then gets even further, because even though there is a, a secret proceeding, even though the, uh, there's legislation that prevents disclosure, even though the, the special advocates aren't able to communicate, they're saying there shouldn't be even an exception in those proceedings. And we can, I think we should break it up, as uh, Mr. Norris does in his factum, but we should break it up into two stages and look first at the privilege. We can talk about the cross-examination as a separate issue. They don't necessarily come together. But what basis is there to deny the judge knowing the name of the informant? or the special advocates. The special advocates should know everything that the judge knows. Why shouldn't the judge know? And my friends say, what, what justification is there for greater disclosure to a special advocate than, you, than there would be in a criminal case? And this is the justification. 
One, the information is being relied on to prove the case. It's not just background. Two, there is a regime of secret proceedings with special advocates that don't exist in the criminal proceeding. The nature of the proceeding and the potential consequences to the name person require enhanced protection. And there's no basis on which, no evidentiary basis on which would support an argument that disclosure of the identity, let's start with that, that the identity in protected proceedings would endanger anyone or dry up sources for which the, is the rationale for the privilege. And don't forget that ultimately the ministers do have the same trump card that they have in a, in a criminal proceeding too. They don't have to present that information. They don't have to rely on it. They don't have to proceed with the case. And the big protection for police informers is that they don't use the information. And so when one takes a look at the entire regime, the lack of involvement of the named person in the public proceedings, the limitations on the special advocates, the further restrictions that are being placed on the special advocates, it's, it's our submission that this process, this regime, is fundamentally unfair and cannot be allowed to continue. Mr. Weber would like to address you with the issue of the destroyed material. Yes, good morning, Justices. <clears throat> a couple of uh, primary or general comments I'd like to make at the outset. Uh, it's worth recognizing in this case that, as my friend indicated earlier, the case is made up of multiple bodies of evidence or information. The submissions I'm making here this morning address the topic of the destroyed evidence, the ceases destroyed evidence and the resultant summaries. So that's one body of information that was before Justice Noel. There were also CSIS interviews, which clearly were not specifically sought to be excluded. There's human source information, as you've heard referred to, and as well human source information. So important to note at the outset that this body of evidence that I'll ultimately be submitting should have rightfully been excluded uh, is but one parcel of evidence that was before the court. And, we're not talking about imploding the case on this piece of this argument alone. There's other material for courts, the court to consider. Another point that needs to be made here, given that we are talking in, about a national security case, a security certificate case, evidence and information on a large scale is withheld from us, public counsel, and from Mr. Harkat. Uh, perhaps it's just part of the nature of the beast. You know, it's uh, the nuances that have to be accommodated to deal with national security deprive us, obviously, a lot of material. That is not a quality of this particular argument. It's important as well that the withholding of information here uh, is not in any way qualified or blanketed by a claim of national security. The information here was withheld as a direct result of CSIS destroying it and destroying it, as we all know, um, 
by misinterpreting their enabling legislation, uh, by not, as this Court pointed out in Sharkui 2, by not paying heed to the clear language of the section that required that they retain that information, and by engaging in an operational policy, OPS 217, that really was in direct and flagrant violation of that section. So the, the material has been destroyed and lost for all purposes, but the deprivation that we face uh, in our effort to represent Mr. Harcat, again, is not explicable by national security uh, explanations, but purely a result of that destruction. So the submissions that I will make an effort to get through here this morning will be organized as follows. Uh, my primary for first point will be that the Federal Court of Appeal did not misapply this Court's uh, reasons in Sharkui 2, and that it was quite correct in its finding that there was a Section 7 breach of the uh, named person, Mr. Harkat's right to disclosure as a result of this destruction. That the issue of prejudice, or on the issue of prejudice, uh, Justice Noel, when we go through his reasons, we submit erred in principle in, in failing to recognize a prejudice and, in fact, attributing a, a remedial quality to the summaries. And in a nutshell, the point is that the Federal Court of Appeal was quite correct when they said uh, the, rem the, the summaries were not a remedy. They could not be imbued with any remedial quality. The summaries were literally the remnant of the problem, the leftovers after the destruction. I'll also be submitting to you that, contrary to our friend's position, that Mr. Harkat did, in fact, suffer uh, actual prejudice as a result of this destruction, and contrary to Justice Noel's finding, uh, and he suffered prejudice directly to his ability to know and meet the case. And as one sifts through the judgments of Justice Noel and the submissions of my friend, there is also a very, you know, in some respects a, a disconnect on this issue that explains differing submissions. That is, what does the right to know and meet a case amount to? And as we'll see in some of the minister's submissions, the meat part uh, doesn't really have much meat. The meat part, from their, from their perspective, is to understand and you have a right to respond. And from our perspective, and, and respectfully submit in keeping with this court's decisions that the Section 7 right of a named person subject to a security certificate is defined and understood not by it being immigration as opposed to criminal law, but by the gravity of the consequence faced by the named person. And obviously, individuals in my client's position face the gravest of potential uh, consequences. Thus, they're entitled, as this court has indicated, to an enhanced degree of procedural fairness. Uh, so meet the case in the context of, of, these, of this case has to be to be able to challenge it, not just to respond to it, not just to tell us his side of the story. And clearly he's denied that as a result of this destroyed evidence in the context of the conversations. And then the final point is that the remedy 
uh, while the Federal Court of Appeal reasoned their way through the issue uh, correctly in our submission. When we got to remedy, my position is the remedy granted doesn't really reconcile in any respect with the prejudice they actually define. Thus, the remedy does not go anywhere near far enough or the distance necessary to vindicate the rights of Mr. Hardcat as they were prejudiced in this particular circumstance. So the first issue then, um, and, and we differ with the ministers on this, of course, and that is whether or not the Federal Court of Appeal uh, misinterpreted this court's reasons in Sharkui too. And in the book, the, uh, the short book we've put before you and our fact, and we do note for you that, that the, this interpretation of uh, the Federal Court of Appeals is also joined in by other recent decisions. You should have received a supplementary book of authorities, including a decision of Justice Hansen in, in Jabala, uh, only released last week. Um, but that decision as well uh, agrees with the decision. You know, it's the same reasoning as applied by the Federal Court of Appeal, as is the decision of Justice Dawson in the Toronto 18 case, um, Ahmad, on this topic. This court, in tab 18, I've included just some extracts from the decision in Sharkui 2. This court held and it's at tab 18 of the uh, supplement, uh, that Section 7, of course, is engaged in, in, national, in security certificate cases. And that what flows as well from Section 7 being engaged is there is a duty to disclose on the part of CSIS. And further, So I'm, I'm just taking paragraph 53 and 64 of the decision and trying to sort of um, just take a shortcut to the ratio that's been understood by other courts and by us and by the Federal Court of Appeal. That that included in paragraph 53 and paragraph 64 where the court holds the CSIS has a duty to retain and disclose all of their um, information or evidence, if we'll call it that engages Section 7, their duty to retain and disclose is to protect the life, liberty, and security of the person. The, it, the language used by the court embraced the language of Section 7 uh, in defining this duty. And that by direct extension, the failure on their part to disclose pursuant to their duty under Section 12 of the CSIS Act is as well tantamount or the equivalent to a Section 7 duty uh, breach of their duty to disclose. So it's a, the courts and the Federal Court of Appeal found the reasoning of this court to be unequivocal on this point that quite simply that failure to provide this material to us which was destroyed constituted a Section 7 breach. And that breach quite simply was a failure to disclose. Extracts from the other cases, Ahmad is at tab 19 and Jabala is at tab 20. 
but I don't really see the, I'm not going to go through it with you. They're, they're just there for you to reflect on. The ministers take the position that even for this primary finding of prejudice, of, of breach, charter breach, there's, there was necessitated a, a finding or their actual prejudice. And what we've put before you uh, at tab 21 of the extract is this court's reasons in R versus Dixon. And the point simply being that at the level of a breach of disclosure right, that there's no obligation at this stage to, to illustrate any actual breach. The denial of that fundamental right is in and of itself a breach. Not necessarily a breach in every case that would generate a remedy. That we'd have to look further down the road to, to see what the effect of the breach was on a case-by-case -case basis. But the argument that even finding a breach in the first place require prejudice, uh, I respectfully submit on the back of Dixon, is just not in keeping with the jurisprudence. It's not necessary to have that at this level to find the breach of the Can I just jump in here for one sec, please? Because yeah. this is different from most cases where their evidence has been lost or destroyed in the sense that usually the Crown then has nothing there's nothing to put forward, and as a result, the accused says, you know, I could have, if I had that evidence, it might have demonstrated that I would have, you know, not had the breathalyzer, it would have been lower reading, and so on and so forth. This is a case where the Crown says, we want to put some evidence forward. We've lost the main evidence, but we want to put some evidence forward. And, and it seems to me that it, when you're looking at it from that perspective, as opposed to we have nothing to offer, that isn't the real test to look at here in terms of whether there's prejudice as to whether the substitute evidence is sufficiently reliable to warrant its reception. Because this is quite different than other cases where the evidence is just lost and no one's trying to put anything forward. So can you help me on that, please? Oh, and I absolutely agree. As I'm saying, this breach of the duty to disclose is sort of the primary level, and as I said, that would in and of itself generate any kind of remedy without showing something more. And in sort of the secondary level of the argument to get for to jump ahead is that that we were denied the right to challenge this this material to actually pursue avenues of investigation and the verification process that was undertaken by the court was just wholly inadequate. And the Federal Court of Appeal pointed that out, that the Federal Court of Appeal says, you know, we, with, with a full record, you could have properly challenged it. You were denied the right to challenge it. And as my friend Mr. Boxall indicated, so you're arguably sort of left with an allegation, but no right to really go at it, no right to test it for translation, to test it for completeness, to text it for, test it for context, to do all of those things. So that's the prejudice as it actually well, plays then, out. Well, then there would never, then there'd be no contest always in these cases, it seems to me. And I don't think this court in Cherkui, too, I wasn't here, I don't think they sent it back for the trial judge to consider if there was going to be a no contest. I would have thought there's something for the trial judge to consider. Well, in Sharkui, too, I mean, the question was a, co a couple of interviews that Mr. Sharkui had, had taken part in, and there were, you know, some notes but not complete record of those interviews. In our case, for instance, there was a CSIS interview with Mr. Harkat where there's not a complete record of it. 
We hadn't sought to exclude it, but we had records. He had a recollection of, of, the, of the meeting, so he could help us and contextualize it. His lawyer, Mr. Kreitz, was present at the meeting and had a set of notes that we were able to use to great effect to actually show in that case that CSIS had actually gotten the record wrong, had inverted the names of two individuals, and that inversion actually grounded an accusation made towards Mr. Harkat that, you know, had to be, you know, Justice Noel to me said, you know, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. So without, you know, in that particular case, we had enough to respond to, so it was hard to make the submission, and we didn't, um, that, that we're left empty-handed and unable to challenge that material. That's why the Federal Court of Appeal, I thought, was clear in saying the only material that should be excluded is that to which your client was not privy. Now, there may be a debate about what he was privy to or not, but... The fundamental problem, Justice Moldaver, on that from our perspective is that the Court of Appeal notes that what we've lost is the ability to scrutinize and challenge, authenticate, you know, the accuracy of this material. My client testified. We, as Charcuterie, the court said in Charcuterie too, brought this application at the end when the record was complete. And what the court knew at that point, having heard Mr. Mr. Harkat's testimony, was that on six of those conversations he denied participation. And on four of the conversations where he allowed for the possibility he may have had communications with this person, he had absolutely no recollection of the event. Hardly surprising, because the conversations took place between 12 and 14 years before. So once you have that entire record in front of you, um, the court recognized that we couldn't challenge or authenticate and that these rights have been lost. How do you reconcile that definition of prejudice or observation of prejudice with a finding that I'm only going to exclude the two to which he's not privy and therefore all of those which he doesn't remember or denies being involved in uh, would still go in? I mean, from my perspective, that would do nothing to vindicate the prejudice to my client. At the very least, at the very least, the reasoning of the Federal Court of Appeal would have to equate to the exclusion of anything he doesn't admit being privy to, anything he's not alleged to have been privy to, anything he's testified he doesn't recall in any detail and thus can't answer. Help me out on this, though. Doesn't a credibility finding stand for anything in these matters? I mean, your client, as you quite properly say, took the stand, said, I don't remember this and I wasn't privy to that. And, and, and mm -hmm. I mean, I just don't know, is the judge supposed to just accept that without any uh, credibility finding? If the judge says, I don't believe you, does that still mean that it's all out? Well, the problem here is, as opposed to, say, a, a criminal case or a criminal case with a jury where I'm allowed, you know, but even with a, a justice who I'm doing a voir dire at the front end with, you know, I exclude, hopefully, the impugned evidence on the back of the charter breach before the justice makes the ultimate findings of credibility or, as, you, as you're alluding to, Justice Moldaver, you know, the overwhelming findings of a lack of credibility. You know, in this particular case, these conversations that were admitted, and I submit wrongfully, uh, sure didn't do my client any favors. 
And in fact, on multiple occasions, because one of my points as I get into this is his right to respond to that, therefore, his right to meet the case has unavoidably been reduced to nothing more than a right of bald denial. That's all. If, if, if he's telling the truth, let's give him the benefit of the doubt on that for the moment of argument. If he's telling the truth, then stripping him of all the surrounding material basically gives him nothing but the right of denial. If he didn't partake in the conversations, he can't contextualize, he can't comment on accuracy, what can he do? So that's, that's what he's left with as a right of defense. And if that's so, and it, it, it was, then is it fair that those bald denials are used against him as they were to great effect by, the, by Justice Noel to find adverse credibility? There were numerous comments throughout the record upon which Justice Noel made adverse comments regarding credibility, as you're, you're well aware. But the bald denials and his inability to explain the conversations which Justice Noel accepted as completely accurate uh, runs throughout the case. So, you know, it's hard for me to accept putting the adverse credibility finding before the, the card, so to speak. Perhaps the credibility finding wouldn't have been so bad if these uh, offending conversations had been excluded by the court and the court hadn't considered them in his overall assessment of credibility. I guess that, I mean, the really, this comes down to the question of are we the right people to be making findings of how many summaries reflect conversations you participated in, didn't participate in. And I think what you're getting is a sense of discomfort. Who, who's, these are, this is not a reasonable doubt question. These are classic credibility findings. Did you put to Justice Noel your position about how many of these summaries reflect conversations you participate in, participated in? Did he make findings? on how many there were, was the Court of Appeal entitled to interfere with his finding, and what should we do? So it's the chain um, that comes before us. You're now giving us evidence that this was wrong, but the way the process proceeds for us is we have to know whether there was a reasonable basis. What do you, I guess I'm, I have a bit of the same quandary as Justice Moldaver. What is it exactly that you want us not to accept in the trial judgment or the Court of Appeal about the summaries, because this case, to some extent, if we agree with you, one of the things you want is to send it back. For what? On the basis of the summaries. In other words, what's left? What, what, what is it that is wrong about the destruction of the original notes that leaves an issue with respect to some of the summaries and which summaries? Well, the, the problem is that Mr. Harkat and, and the court recognized that there was a reasonable possibility, there's a reasonable possibility that if he had the full body of information, he could have challenged these, these conversations. So your position is the fact of the destruction period. My position. You're not parsing out which summary reflects what. Your position is the non-existence of the originals so prejudices his ability to meet the case that shouldn't even be set back because there's nothing to challenge the reasonability of the decision? Or that it goes, I mean, you want all of it excluded? These conversations, as I said, at a minimum, at a minimum, the conversations that he denied partaking in 
which there were six of them, and four conversations that he quite understandably indicated after 12 or 14 years. I may have had those discussions, but I have no recollection, so I can't assist. Right? Those conversations have to be excluded in my respectful submission because his right to know and meet the case, to challenge the case, to exercise his meaning, you know, his, a meaningful Section 7 entitlement has been denied him by this destruction. That's the prejudice that was caused to him by the destruction of the evidence and the only remedy capable of rectifying that, given that adverse findings are made on the back of, of those, is to exclude those conversations. As to what we do after, after this, I mean, there's a question as to whether or not when a judge makes sweeping adverse credibility findings uh, that permeate the entire case, whether or not it is the right type of case to go back for further consideration, um, and whether or not a new proceeding entirely is required. Uh, but in the alternative, you know, it, I mean, that's up to this, to this court, but the, the, the conversations in their entirety could be excluded, and then the remnant reassessed, and, and the court directed to disabuse its mind of anything that, you know, any importance or evidentiary importance they attach to those conversations. Um, you know, obviously, from probably not surprising from Mr. Harkat's perspective, I would suggest that a case that is rife with adverse credibility findings that commence in paragraph one and end at the end of the case and litter the case from beginning to end is not the type of case that should go back before that same jurist that the appearance of fairness is better served by a fresh jurist taking a fresh look at Mr. Harkat without the burden of these conversations that he can't defend himself on. So that's my primary position. But alternatively, I, you know, obviously the, the options available um, to, to send it back and, and direct the justice to disabuse his mind of everything that should have rightfully been excluded. Didn't the trial judge, though, look for confirmation on all these things? And, I mean, he knew this record backwards and forwards and presumably knew about information that you didn't know, obviously, <clears throat> but that was in the secret documents and so on. I mean, coming back again to my colleague's point to you, what are we sending it back for if you're right? I, there's, it would be a, a, just a useless fruitless exercise? Well, these conversations firstly did not form an inconsequential body of evidence. I mean, they were significant, at least a few of them, in, in drawing evidence of affiliation with Abu Zubaydah, with drawing affiliation with Ibn Khattab. So they're, they're too important to say that their exclusion wouldn't have had a tangible effect on the tapestry that is this case from my client's perspective. I mean, he may well have done a lot better without these conversations. I said at the outset, there's other information at the disposal of the court, and there is. But this is still a formidable body of evidence, and if it was excluded, the case would warrant a fresh look. But with respect to what you said about the um, Justice Noel verifying these uh, conversations, which of course he's 
required to do at the direction of this court. And if Section 7 is to be respected, that verification should have been, in fact, must have been, you know, rigorous as far as I'm concerned. And this was a disturbing judgment for me to read, this federal court judgment, because I don't know much of what goes on in, in fact, I know nothing about what goes on in, in closed hearings. And I constantly rub my head wondering, but I, this case, I got a peek inside. The Federal Court of Appeal gave us a peek inside. And what I gleaned from that, what I derived from that, even though I heard my friend's submissions, who does know what goes on behind closed doors, the two witnesses that were called, John and CM, the Court of Appeal said, look, they were completely generic. They had no knowledge of these things at all. This court, when you decided Charcuterie II, contemplated that, you know, the monitors would be called, the people who actually created these documents would be called. Let's get a first-hand account. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. We got two generic witnesses. John, who I actually had the pleasure of hearing the evidence of, you know, didn't know what the policy was, hadn't talked to people in years, right? His evidence was not that useful. And the Federal Court of Appeal was rather clear on that. It was generic, vague evidence that didn't help in verifying anything. And CM, who I didn't hear, I'm told by the Federal Court of Appeal, was equally vague and, to be frank, as useless to them in their assessment or reassessment of the verification process. And then I found out, when I read it, that the situation was even more severe than that. The situation was, according to the Federal Court of Appeal, we couldn't tell which of them were actually intercepts and which of them might have been third-party accounts of conversations, which is something I always wanted to know, and contrary to my friend's submission, I never found out. I never found that out in the course of this proceeding. And then we find out that some of the conversations may have come out of the mouth of a human source by the name known as XXX. Well, XXX, of course, as you all know, is the very source that caused the polygraph kerfuffle. He is the individual who was originally found to have been an unrepentant liar in his first polygraph test, only to have that thing updated and all of a sudden he didn't look so bad. But for me to find out that he may have well been the source of some of these conversations and further, that he may have been inadequately corroborated goes to the heart of whether or not these conversations were properly verified. So, you know, there's obvious palpable prejudice to my client, I would respectfully submit, as a result of, um, as a result of the process. And he couldn't, he can't verify or test their authenticity or do that. And the Federal Court of Appeal tells us, with all due respect to Justice Noel didn't either, right, that, you know, that his process was at least through their lens, as, as that Court of Appeals saw it, was inadequate, that he hadn't satisfied the verification process um, to, the, to the level necessary and not to endanger the fair trial interests of my client. You come down to then, in response to the questions you've been asked, really what we have here is the Federal Court of Appeals saying that Justice Noel's reliability finding is unreasonable. And, and that becomes a question, I suppose, of whether or not uh, the Court of Appeal um, did its, you know, in terms of standard of review and so on, uh, was entitled to come to that conclusion. Is that right? Or? 
Well, I, you know, at the end of the day, this court is going to reconvene on this matter and, and, and then know a lot more about this than I and about the quality of that process. Uh, but, you know, Justice Noel had a duty to fulfill and a duty that has to be treated sacrosanctly in this process where the named person is utterly at the mercy of others because right? he doesn't have a hand in his own defense. Um, and, and if that process wasn't conducted and completed rigorously and there's, you know, stones left unturned, then then the fair trial interests of my client are directly implicated. And then you'll know that. But, it, you know, the Federal Court of Appeal had at their disposal the entire record and had counsel who were fully apprised, uh, you know, of all of the sort of niceties of the case and all of the secret evidence. And, and, they, and they came out of the other end being completely dissatisfied. You know, the process, let me just say is, the process of collection and retention of intelligence is, is rather, you know, it's a different world than, than, than a criminal case. And, and the reliability of this material, um, you know, is such that it, it can quite easily go off the rails. I refer to the one example with you of, the CSIS interview of my client where the names were inverted. Um, and, you know, how this confusion happens and it makes its way into a formal record and the lack of a complete record uh, lets this, this error occur. And when these summaries are created, when we, you, if you review John's evidence on this, when these summaries are created, they're not created verbatim. You know, they're just notes of what they consider to be relevant information. Uh, and the extracts are in the book. You know, it's, it very much is sort of fulfilling their CSIS defined mandate about what kind of information they deem relevant. And as a result of this, the record is not complete. It has the very real potential always of getting distorted in the process. And this decision that came out just last week was really quite startling. It's, it's a different case, but it's, it's a CSIS summarization process and an example just to alert us all and remind us all how dangerous this can be. And this was in Jabala's recent decision and the reasons of Justice Hansen. And in that case, what they ended up discovering or the essays discovered, and it's made its way into the public record, is there was a situation of overlapping summaries. And what happened is they had monitors CSIS monitors behaving by CSIS protocols, uh, doing what they all do, you know, what they're told to do as part of their job, summarize the same conversation. They were in different regions, geographic regions. So monitor A and monitor B were both listening to the same conversation. And they engaged in their respective summarization processes. And the essays were able to discover these two summaries that purported to summarize the exact same conversation. But, but for the fact that the phone numbers and times and everything were the same and they knew it was the same call, the point being made was they didn't even resemble one another. You wouldn't have known that the summaries were talking about the same conversation but for the time and date, et cetera. 
In other words, there's an enormous subjective component that goes into making these summaries, and it renders them unsafe. And accepting them at their word um, is a dangerous prospect. And accepting them at their word in the face of my client's sworn denial that he partook in particular conversations is not only a dangerous prospect, um, but a prospect I would submit that offends my client's Section 7 right. I guess that you have filed a Jabala in your material. Pardon me? I guess that you have filed a judgment of Jabala in your material. I did. The, the, the judgment was filed just days ago, as soon as we got our hands on it, as by way of a supplementary book of authorities. Okay. And, um, and there are some extracts of it in our uh, condensed book as well. Thank you. Does Chief Justice have that? Yeah, thank you. amazing how much ground we can cover just by way of going through questions instead of just going through my uh, uh, voluminous written out submissions and I'm sitting there looking for something fresh to say. <laughs> you want some help? <laughs> <laughs> I was well, going to step up to the plate if I might. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at, par at the uh, un unreasonableness decision of Justice Noel which is is tab 9 of the book. And I'm looking at paragraph 71. I'm going to see if I can just get a copy. Thank you. Volume, yeah. And I'm looking... So it was paragraph 71? 71, yes. Tab 9. I'm really yes. just, just trying to fill in some time for you, Mr. Weber. <laughs> no, seriously, the question relates to the last three lines of the paragraph where Justice Noel is examining from a global perspective whether, in his view, your client had a fair shot at answering these allegations. And concludes in the affirmative. It says, the entire factual basis may not be known to him, i.e. your client. It is known to the special advocates, but his knowledge is such that as it was seen during the presentation of his evidence, he was able to respond to it. The written submissions of public counsel for Mr. Harkat confirm it quite clearly. I confirm that the public evidence provided Mr. Harkat with adequate knowledge of the allegations. It also gave him much of the factual evidence on which the ministers relied. That's a pretty strong finding that whatever lacunae there may have been in disclosure or process, overall there was a fair hearing in this case. Well, 
Let me say this, that, that there's a lot of language like that throughout these decisions. You know, there's a lot of language about, you know, how, how well things, everything went in camera and, and how good a job my esteemed colleagues did in their roles as special advocates. You know, um, you know, on the other hand, in these conversations, it's worth mentioning um, that what did come out in, in the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal, I might say, that with respect to the conversations, it's not only me who was dissatisfied with the verification process, and it's, or nor is it the Federal Court of Appeal, but they said to us via their decision that the special advocates weren't satisfied either. That the special advocates with the full knowledge of the case didn't feel that they were in a position to able to challenge the accuracy or verify the accuracy of the conversations. But so, feelings of counsel don't provide a ground of appeal. We have a pretty strong finding by a judge who lived with this case for I don't know even how many years. And I'm just wondering if we're not being a little casual with that strong finding. Well, the record in this case, I mean, and it, Justice Noel, you know, does have a lot of expertise in this area and no one questions his dedication or his work ethic. But the fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is so often um, we were given or extended the right, as he said, to respond. We were given enough information, as Mr. Boxall indicates, to know the allegation. But we were not given enough information to, in any respect or in any way challenge it. And Justice Noel, as do the ministers in their factum, understand the right to know and meet the case as the right to be basically informed of the allegations and the right to respond, but not the right to meet and challenge. And this is a fundamental difference between us and our camps. And it's clear as we review Justice Noel's reasons that even on this issue alone, that 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 is not how he equates the Section 7 rights of a named person. That is to challenge the case. The understanding of the court is that he has a right to know the allegations. And that's the understanding of the ministers as articulated in their factum. And that is not my understanding or my submission, because it's hardly my decision to make. It is not my submission is that that right is not Section 7 compliant in a situation such as this, where the consequences to the named person are as grave as they are, and thus the named person is entitled to an enhanced quotient of, uh, <coughs> of fundamental justice. The Section 7 rights need to be full and robust, given the danger he's in. Um, so Justice Noel's comments, uh, Justice Cromwell, have to be understood in that context. And it's not to be disrespectful, but, you know, maybe it's, you know, that's how it was prior to Sharkui 1 and Sharkui 2, and, and there's still remnants of the old uh, before the news completely takes over. But it has to be understood in context, even what Justice Noel says. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Uh, Hassan. Chief Justice and Justices, Mr. I am not Mr. Hassan. Uh, 
Mr. Hassan was supposed to be making submissions uh, to you on behalf of the BCCLA, so it's not a mistake with the council sheet, but unfortunately he fell ill last night, and so I will do my best to step into his shoes. The respondent and has made, and some of the other interveners, will make submissions on the constitutionality of the scheme, touching on various aspects of it. The BCCLA seeks to inform this debate by looking to some analogous regimes in other jurisdictions, such as the United Kingdom, such as the United States. And in our submission, when you look to how our closest allies have confronted this problem of balancing national security with individual liberty, it becomes clear that the Canadian regime, as it's currently structured, is severely wanting. So if I achieve nothing else here today, I hope to at least provide an answer to the question that Justice Abella posed earlier, as to the lessons we can draw on from other jurisdictions. And I should also add at the outset, one can, of course, draw up a long litany of constitutional defects with this regime. I simply hope to underscore a few of them by looking to analogous jurisdictions. Let me turn first to the UK regime. The UK regime, of course, is particularly instructive because it was the UK model in Sharkawi 1 that led this court to suggest uh, the special advocates system as one less rights-impairing way of dealing with security certificates. Now, since Sharkawi 1 was decided, things have changed in the UK. In 2009, the House of Lords declared the UK regime to be incompatible with its international obligations because the name person could not receive disclosure of information where it would be injurious to national security, even where that information was essential to a fair hearing. National security was a trump on that. And the House of Lords found that to be incompatible with the international obligations and instead read in a requirement that where the information is essential to a fair trial, it has to be disclosed or the government has to withdraw reliance on it. Is that the decision? Did that decision follow the, the European Human Rights Court decision in A? The, I'm speaking of the AF decision, and to yeah, my mind, the, the, the two decisions are, are consistent in that respect. There is this safety valve that they impose or read into the legislation that if it's essential to uh, a fair hearing, then it must be disclosed, or the government must withdraw reliance on it. And, I'm, and this decision, is ex this decision, an excerpt of it, is included at tab one of our condensed book, just for the Court's reference. Paragraph 68 is where it gets to the nub of the holding. Right, so that decision followed the decision of A. I believe it did, yes. Well, I'm quite sure it did. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I can't that remember the precise chronology of the, the two decisions. Uh, Justice Moulton. Well, no, I'm sorry. I think the aid decision was 2009. I don't want to waste a lot of your time, but the other one was 2010, the one that you're just referring to. So I'm presuming the one you're just referring to followed the decision of the European Human Rights Court in A. The, the decision I'm referring to is dated June 10th of 2009, uh, Justice Moldaver. Uh, so, it, but l l perhaps I can, I can, I can, uh, add to that discussion in this way. Since these decisions, both those decisions, the UK has enacted new legislation, the Terrorism Prevention, uh, it's the TPIM Act, the Terrorism uh, Prevention and Investigative Measures Act. And this now imports that requirement that where 
information is essential to a fair hearing, it has to be disclosed. Now, the other notable aspect of this regime, of course, and this is the second way in which the U.K. regime is less impairing than the current regime, is it does not authorize detention. It provides for the control of the named person's movements and associations in the same way that a recognizance of bail might do. Uh, and it authorizes detention only if someone breaches the terms of a, of a TPIM order, because, of course, in that case, they'd be prosecuted for uh, a criminal offense. But it does not authorize detention. And indeed, it, even house arrest is only authorized in exceptional circumstances. It's called an enhanced measure under that legislation. And house arrest, I think, is, I, is, I submit, is time limited to 90 days. And even the TPIM order itself is time limited to two years and can only be renewed once. And so you, you don't have the, what we have in this case, which is the prospect of uh, indefinite control of the named person, and not only indefinite control, but indefinite detention. Is it your position that the Canadians, current Canadian scheme allows security to trump fairness? It is. I, I think, and I know there, the Court has engaged in some discussion with counsel about the meaning of the various provisions. But as I read Section 83 and the various subprovisions underneath, and I, I uh, submit that the most telling is uh, 83.1 sub e, which says, uh, this is the provision says, the judge shall ensure that the permanent resident or foreign national is provided with a summary of information and other evidence that enables them to be reasonably informed uh, of the case, but that does not include anything that in the judge's opinion would be injurious to national security or endanger the safety of any person. That latter part of the section qualifies the former and, as the ministers have said, acts as a trump on disclosure, acts as a ceiling beyond which disclosure cannot go. And then further, the, the Section 83, of course, provides that the judge may hear evidence in the absence of the named person and then base a decision on that. Uh, now, Justice Cromwell, you adverted to uh, section 183, I believe 1H, uh, and the uh, provision which says that the judge may receive into evidence anything that's reliable and, and appropriate, and there's some discussion as to whether that would allow the judge to exclude uh, evidence that has not been disclosed. And I, I don't read it that way. If the court uh, does wish to interpret the word appropriate to mean that any time information which is essential to the fairness of the hearing has not been disclosed, then the government can't rely on it, then I suppose that would go some distance towards addressing the one defect that I have highlighted in, in, insofar as there's an absence of a safety valve, as you have in the UK. Uh, but it would not go the complete distance, because even in the UK procedure, you don't have the prospect of detention. You don't have the prospect of indefinite detention. Talk about essential, though. That word may mean different things to different people. The reason I raised this A case from the European court was because it influenced the subsequent decision of the House of Lords, as I understand it. And in the A decision, at paragraph 220, the court says they give an example of what would be sufficient. And, and if I could just take a couple of seconds just to read it. It's at paragraph 220. An example would be the allegation made against several of the applicants that they had attended a terrorist training camp at a stated location between stated dates 
Given the precise nature of the allegation, it would have been possible for the applicant to provide the special advocate with exonerating evidence, for example, of an alibi or of an alternative explanation for his presence there, sufficient to permit the advocate effectively to challenge the allegation. I read that as saying, as long as you give enough kind of information that sort of can focus the target on a particular event or particular time frame in the event, that that's enough. You don't have to tell the applicant where the source came, who's the source, and how many sources there are, and so on and so forth. And, and, and it doesn't require the kind of specificity that I have been hearing uh, is required in order to constitutionalize this scheme. What do you say about that? It's difficult, I suppose, Justice Moldaver, to comment on the precise level of specificity that is required uh, at the stage we're at now, which is in, in attempting to articulate a general rule or constitutional rule. Uh, I, I, take your, I, I, I take your point that, uh, depending on the specific facts of each case, what is essential to a fair hearing may vary. I certainly would not rule out uh, certainly would urge this court not to rule out that in some cases the source may be essential. Uh, but that's not something that's going to vary given the specific facts of each case. The important point from the BCCLA's perspective is this legislation does not even go that far because it does not allow for any balancing of what is essential to the named person, what is going to enable the named person to meet the government's case, where the information where the disclosure of the information would be injurious to national security, it cannot be disclosed. And that is on the plain meaning of this legislation. It is that that renders this unconstitutional. Uh, I see I am out of, out of time, Chief Justice. I will leave my submissions uh, on the United States regime uh, in our fact. And perhaps if I could just close by saying this, these regimes that we have put forward to the court are not simply hypothetical, pie-in-the-sky uh, alternatives that may or may not be workable in the specific circumstances. They are real regimes implemented by uh, nations who not only share similar legal traditions to us, but who have arguably suffered more at the hands of terrorism. And if they are able to combat terrorism and balance national security and individual liberty in a way that is more respecting of the rights than the Canadian regime, then there is no constitutional justification for the Canadian regime to continue to exist. Subject any questions? Chief, can I just ask one question? Uh, I just want to be sure about the timing, Mr. Chan. In um, his decision, um, Justice Noel referred to a decision of uh, Justice Noel of uh, Justice Mosley in the federal court in Almry, suggesting yes, in that, Almry. that the ERPA disclosure requirements are broader than anybody else's. Is that now out of date? And, and it, it is out of date. And as my, my reading of Justice Mosley's decision in Omri was that he was making an observation about what the practice was uh, about the UK uh, with, the, with respect to the UK proceedings at the time in 2009. Whether or not that observation was accurate, the TPIM Act, the new legislation that's currently in effect, was enacted in 2011. And that makes it absolutely clear that disclosure can be made, uh, notwithstanding that it might be injurious to national security. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Norris.
Thank you, Chief Justice. Justices, on behalf of the Canadian Council of Criminal Defence Lawyers, I propose to limit my submissions to the issue of human source privilege, and I wish to make uh, three uh, points in relation to that. Uh, the first is that there is no gap in the protection that is provided by the statute uh, that makes it necessary to import a common law class privilege into the public disclosure of information that may touch on uh, the identity of a human source. The second is that the rationale for protecting human sources that's been recognized by this court is entirely absent in the closed proceeding and thus there is no basis for uh, importing uh, a class privilege into the closed proceedings. And thirdly, uh, doing so, that is importing a class privilege into the closed proceedings, would actually impair the effectiveness of the special advocate as someone who represents the interests of the named person in that closed proceeding. Looking first at public disclosure of information that could identify a, a human source of information for the service, in our respectful submission, the statutory regime under IRPA is entirely sufficient to ensure that nothing that could identify a human source will ever be made public. And that can be uh, rooted either in uh, ensuring that nothing that is injurious to national security uh, is disclosed or, and or in uh, ensuring that nothing that endangers the safety of a person would be disclosed. Isn't that a question of interpretation, yes. Mr. Norris? I mean, the principle is that unless it's very, very clear in the statute, a common law privilege will not be said to be overridden. So is your position that there shouldn't be a class privilege or that you don't even need a case-by-case -case privilege analysis because the statute, the statute provides some protection? But the fact that it provides some protection doesn't mean that it supersedes the common law right. And it, so how do — I'm having trouble thinking about how to think about thank that. Thank you. In, in, in our submission, um, the, the statutory protection is complete. It is entirely up to the task of keeping back whatever the class privilege would have kept back in public about disclosure. case by case as well. And, and Does it extinguish yes. the privilege at common law? It, it extinguishes it only in the sense that you don't need to turn to it for dealing with public disclosure because um, nothing that would escape into the public under the statutory disclosure regime would be contrary to the class privilege or even, I suspect, a case-by-case -case privilege. What if um, a privilege is asserted in the closed regime, in the closed uh, yes. inquiry? Yes. And, and, and if I may turn directly case to by that. Case-by-case privilege yes. is asserted. Um, the, the, uh, there is no basis in our submission to hold anything back from the special advocates. Um, if you look to the, um, the rationales for informer privilege is speaking very broadly. It is to protect the informer and to encourage others to come forward. It creates an incentive for the individual informer to keep informing or to decide to inform and to keep informing. And by showing that the courts will protect the promise that's been made, it encourages others and probably the original informer to keep informing as well. Is that the result of the application of a Wigmore test or are you saying that there is no test that needs to be applied? At, at the first stage of the analysis, there's no test that needs to be applied in my submission because we have not in any meaningful way broadened the circle of privilege. And that really is what uh, this discussion comes down to, is who gets to draw the circle of privilege. 
But in our submission, it is the court that must do so. And, the, and it should not accede to the services view that this is how the, the circle should be drawn. I guess what, what I'd like your help on is how to deal with the finding that Justice Noel made that there would, in fact, be a drying up of sources if there wasn't some privilege. And he used Wigmore to decide whether you use it for class or, yes. or individual. It doesn't matter. He used Wigmore to say that there was a basis for the privilege. So what, it was a finding. It was based on a footnote that wasn't clearly identified. I mean, he said footnote 5, but it doesn't list a source. I yes. appreciate that's a problem. Indeed. Uh, but what do we do with that finding, a fact? In my submission, the, the complete answer to that question can be known only tomorrow after you hear about the closed record. But I would say that, um, and, and I know nothing about the closed record, of course, and I, I can't comment in any way on, on the services practices about, about uh, recruiting sources. But if you think about um, Mr. Hubbard's example, that uh, often uh, negotiating with a source will be negotiating with people of pretty unsavory character. The service is, in some cases, going to be making a deal with the devil. Uh, Justice Binney observed uh, in an earlier case that uh, sometimes sources act from high motives, other times not so much. Uh, I wouldn't expect that the negotiation with the source is going to be governed by um, Queensbury's rules that the service is going to be very strategic in how it discloses information to the source and in how they craft the promise. So, for example, if this court was, were to rule that um, uh, cross-examination is permissible in some cases, depending on the, the individual case, I don't know whether the service would disclose that fact in their negotiations or not. They might say, no, we're going to hold that back from these potential sources because that's going to make them clam up. Similarly with, with polygraph um, uh, results or, or submitting to a polygraph examination. Would they tell the source in their first meeting, well, you know what, um, you might have to take a polygraph and you should read this Oracle case from the Supreme Court of Canada because that's going to tell you all about what that process is like and how unpleasant that is. Well, they're probably not going to say that. And so we need to look at what the promise is in order to determine, first of all, whether disclosure to the special advocate breaches that promise. How do you base a promise? What's the statutory? Somebody comes in and says, I've got some information. What do you tell that person then, based on this legislative scheme? What promise can you make? Well, and, and that, with, with respect, is, is exactly the right question. Because in Bisayong Kibble, uh, as, the way, the, as the court put it, um, the law authorizes police, in that case, to make certain promises. And we don't know yet what the law authorizes. That will be for you to decide, and then the service will, will make its practices conform with that. But we can't let the tail wag the dog and simply have the service say, this is our practice, therefore you should endorse it. And so um, if we look at the overall question of why we have this protection, it is, I would suggest, a, a public duty to protect people who share information. And at the same time, it's uh, creates an incentive for individuals to share information. And um, depending on what is said by the service, um, I imagine that it's not a very nuanced discussion and it's simply, we will not let your identity become public. Well, if that's the promise, that's not being breached by sharing the information with the judge or with the special advocate. The, Mr. Norris, yes. may I just take you back to the public disclosure for a minute where you, where you argue that the statute is sufficient, there doesn't yes. have to be any kind of common law privilege. Does that mean that you accept that the statute is constitutional, these provisions are constitutional? 
Uh, for the sake of this argument, yes, I do. <laughs> we've, we've, we've chosen a very narrow well, ground. Uh, how, how, are, uh, how, are, how are we supposed to deal with that? I mean, do I have to ask you, well, if the provisions are not constitutional now, how do we deal with common law privilege or what? I, I would link the, the question to the overall question of constitutionality, and so I respectfully disagree with, with my friend Mr. Hubbard where he says, no, no, the, you can deal with the two separately. The more the ability of special advocates to protect the interests of the named person enclosed is restricted, the more questionable the constitutionality of the process is. But if, um, uh, if those abilities are not restricted or only minimally restricted, then the more constitutional the regime starts to look. But um, this court has acknowledged in Sharkawi that there will be some information that just can't be made public and we need to find a substantial substitute for disclosure uh, in order for the process to be fair. It's important to underscore um, the, the unique feature of this regime, which is that um, the evidence can be relied on to determine the ultimate issue. And that means in our submission that uh, evidence that could identify the source must be made available to the special advocate because that goes directly to the relevance and reliability and sufficiency of the evidence and the weight to be given to it. What are the service's motivations? Sorry, the source's motivations. What is the source's relationship to the target? Um, that sort of thing could disclose the identity. Well, it's the, um, it's the neighbor. And it turns out it's a neighbor who has a grudge against the named person and has been uh, mad at him for all kinds of reasons. But to disclose the fact that it's the neighbor would identify the source. The public should never know that if it's a true source and it's privileged, but the special advocate must know that in order to effectively represent the interests of the named person. Just before you finish, could you identify for me what you say the specific provisions are that create that substitute the privilege, that create that protection? Yes, it's, it's the two that govern um, public disclosure, and they uh, relate to, uh, sorry, they are specifically 83.1D and 83.1E, where nothing may be disclosed, the disclosure of which would be injurious to national security or would endanger the safety of any person. Unlike, for example, Section 38 and Section 37 of the Canada Evidence Act, there's no balancing provided for here. These are categorical protections. Some will argue before you that that's a flaw in the, in the regime, but in the context of this discussion about privilege, that could be seen as a virtue that makes it entirely uh, equivalent to the common law class privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the court will rise uh, for its noon recess and will return at 2 o'clock. Merci. Thank you. I believe Mr. Kapoor is next. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, I'm here today on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, you have been uh, receiving submissions about the information flow from the uh, designated judge out to the open process by way of public summaries. 
How can the target or the named person know enough about the case? I want to direct your attention now to something a little bit different. I want to direct your attention to the relationship between the special advocate and the public counsel, or open counsel as we sometimes refer them to. In my respectful submission, following on Sharkawi 1, the government decided to enact the special advocate regime. This, the role of the special advocate and the function of the special advocate is to protect the interest of the named person. As a practical matter, that means essentially defend that person in the closed proceeding. They have a role which is, although not partisan in the same way that you would have if it's a sister-client relationship, you are nevertheless, as the special advocate, responsible to advance whatever can be advanced that inures to the benefit of the named person. And this is a peculiar role in our system. There's no other counsel that performs that kind of role. That is, one who does not have a relationship with a client, yet is responsible to protect that client. Similarly, the role of open counsel in these proceedings is also unique in our system. The person who has the solicitor-client responsibility, the, charged with the ethical responsibility to defend, does not have all the disclosure, all the information that's being relied upon to, and make no mistake about it, either put their client in jail or have them deported from the country. So, in a very real sense, the named person's defense is split over two sets of counsel. And we have what comes in between those two sets of counsel. The trial judge, or sorry, forgive me, the designated judge. And the communication provisions is what I want to draw your attention to and for your consideration um, on this appeal. The designated judge brokers the fact of communication between the special advocate and open counsel the content of communication between the special advocate and open counsel. The difficulty that this poses for this regime is when you're preparing your case as open counsel, or let's take a regular case where you don't have this bifurcation. You sit in your office, you review the file, you decide who to interview. You decide what your litigation strategy is going to be, and you're armed with all the information to make those choices. In this system, public counsel is not armed with all the information to make those choices. In this system, they may not even know necessarily what information potentially sits in closed that could assist them. And there are two parts of the closed file that are important to keep in mind. That's the information that the government relies upon, to establish its case, and then what is called in these proceedings Sharkawi II information, which is the broader disclosure. So to use an analogy to, say, criminal law or even a, even a civil case, you get production across these two sets of lawyers. They get production of not only what the government relies upon, but what they do not rely upon that's related to the target or to the named person. But the closed information can be, need not be, but it can be more robust, not only in terms of volume, but content. How can a special advocate protect the interest of the named person 
when much of what the special advocate may be thinking about are matters of litigation strategy, the kinds of applications that could be brought in open that could assist the named person, when the special advocate needs to go to the designated judge and get permission to speak. Well, you may say, well, if it's not going to be insecure, then what's the problem? You'll ask the judge, the judge will say, fine, go ahead. Well, the reason why it's a problem is because even though it's insecure, it may reveal something of this litigation strategy that you wish to bring to open counsel's mind. Can I ask, is that done in the presence of uh, the minister's counsel? I think it's, it's varyingly. It could be done uh, ex parte, the minister on notice that it's going to be ex parte, or in the presence of minister's counsel. Um, my understanding is that uh, on occasion it's done in the presence of minister's counsel. And that's an additional layer, that is to say, not only are you telling your trial judge, but you're telling your adversary what your strategy is, or how this communication relates to a particular strategy that may have been formed in open. And sometimes it can be communications where you want to let open counsel know that certain applications that they are thinking of bringing or have brought, really they need not be concerned about. So, for example, there may be an application about uh, forcing the government to turn over to the special advocates uh, information about sources. We were talking about sources earlier today. But you may have a case where the sources don't figure prominently. But they may not know human sources. The open lawyers may not know. So rather than have litigation, that's really, to borrow from Fiddler on the Roof, a staircase going nowhere just for show, maybe it would be better so that they know enough to make an educated choice of whether they want to advance a particular application. It can also, though, be more than just litigation management. It can also have an impact upon um, their uh, work in a, in a way prejudicial to the named person. So you can have a situation where the special advocate discovers something enclosed and wants to communicate to open counsel. I'm going to give a, a hypothetical example. Uh, there may be a situation where there is a, um, uh, uh, a release term that the named person not associate with another person. Let's call that person their half-brother. And the, the named person was happy to sign on that release term because they want to get out of jail. And that happens all the time, as we know. They'll sign on to terms to get out. Um, so they do. He's out. Great. You're enclosed. You learn some information about that half-brother that suggests that you understand now why it is that the, that the service would, would impose this term. But you think the service has it wrong. That is to say, they've made a mistake about the half-brother. So you want to say to open counsel, why don't you vary the term so these half-brothers can see each other. You go to your designated judge, and the designated judge has seen the information, right? So you go to your designated judge and you ask him. He says, sure, no problem. Don't say anything confidential. I understand. You can go ahead. Your open counsel then seeks instructions. And let's say the name person says, I don't want to spend the money on a review, or I don't want to vary the terms, uh, so I'm just not going to do that. For reasons that have 
that are their own choices. Your designated judge will know that the person who they're not to associate with, let's say, is a security threat from the intelligence. But no application was brought to vary it. I've told them, let's say, or the special advocate has told the, the designated judge, there's good reason to doubt the correctness of this intelligence. But no application is brought to vary it. The result of it is that the judge will think, and this is what open counsel will think, or a special advocate will think before they make the request, will think, hmm, I wonder why that is. Maybe the person is a bad person. Maybe his associations are bad. So when you're making your choice to speak to the designated judge or public counsel makes a choice to ask for permission to talk about a particular topic, the first thing they ask themselves is, what impact will this have on my trier of fact? And that is a distortion that does not exist in any other piece of litigation. It is an artifact of the way the government has chosen to protect national security information. So we say, on behalf of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, that the better way to protect national security information in this context is to trust the special advocate. Just like we trust government lawyers. Just like there's no bar on the closed government lawyer also being the open government lawyer, who will in fact cross-examine the named person in open, we don't view that as a threat to national security. Why can't we trust the special advocate to exercise caution? They're bound by their ethical oaths. They're bound by the Security of Information Act. They're bound by their top secret clearance to not reveal any closed information when they speak with public counsel about litigation strategy matters. The flow of information is not only about the court to counsel, public counsel. It's also about coordinating strategy between counsel charged with the responsibility of protecting the named person. Thank you. For some Thank you. Mr. Waldman. Yes, I'm, I'm here on behalf of the Canadian Bar Association. And I want to make two points. Uh, I want to address Justice Abello's question about what things could be done to improve the system. I want to make it clear that suggestions to improve the system don't uh, indicate that I support the system, but uh, I think it's important that the court be aware of, of what possible things that can be made to improve it because my friend uh, representing the government has argued that this is the best possible system, and we strongly disagree. I want to pick up from where Mr. Kapoor left off. Uh, the first most obvious change that could be made is in the communication regime. Now, uh, my friend uh, made reference to the CERC process or the ARAR models, but, the, but what, I'm, what we're suggesting here is we have a very sui generis situation. And what really is required is a regime where the special advocates act as the surrogate counsel in the closed hearing, but with enhanced power of communication. And as Mr. Kapoor just said, what we're saying is there's no reason why security cleared uh, special advocates who are bound by their oath of secrecy and bound by the Security Information Act cannot be trusted in the same way as ministerial counsel to protect the secret information. They should be able to communicate. Obviously, the communication would be limited by their oath of secrecy. I mean, it happened in Arar that we would meet with Mr. Cavaluso, and he made uh, 
discuss this with you later. And he, we would have these very strange conversations. You know, he would, uh, he had read the secret evidence. Of course, special advocates are barred from any communication after the secret evidence is uh, disclosed is, is to them. And we would have these strange conversations where he would ask us a whole bunch of questions about a whole bunch of facts, and we had no idea what was uh, on Mr. Cavalusa's mind, but he assured us afterwards that all these conversations had assisted him in preparation for his uh, cross-examination in the closed hearings. The way the system is now, it's impossible, save with, uh, with permission of the judge and all the difficulties uh, that that entails. And, of course, the, the, the other limitations, the judge cannot authorize communication if the communication would disclose uh, national security information. So that's the first point. The second point would be to consider authorizing the judge to balance disclosure, unlike a Section 38 procedure. Under the current regime, the judge cannot disclose information once he's satisfied that the disclosure would, uh, would be injurious to national security. The Section 38 regime under the Canada Evidence Act allows the judge some discretion to balance the importance of the information as opposed to the harm to national security. Ultimately, uh, as you pointed out in Ahmed, if the court, if the judge orders disclosure, it would always be open to the government to withdraw the information if they decided that they could not disclose it. As I said in my factum, there are a whole series of other issues that, that indicate that, there, that special advocates and the public council are, are not on the same uh, level playing field as the uh, Department of Justice lawyer. Mr. Kapoor just made reference to one other obvious difference. Government counsel who, who, who appears at the uh, public hearing can be the same counsel who appears at the closed hearing. Special advocate doesn't have any right to uh, participate in the open hearing. So what that means is it gives a huge advantage to government counsel who has knowledge of the secret evidence and based upon that knowledge can cross-examine the named person who hasn't had the benefit of disclosure of the secret file and make seemingly innocuous questions that might have serious, uh, important significance in, in the closed uh, evidence that uh, undermine the credibility of the person because he may have a faulty recollection. And, of course, public counsel has no idea as to what the, uh, the closed evidence is and has no idea of the significance of a seemingly innocuous question. There should be, it should be clear that there should be a balance. In the public hearing, the counsel representing the minister should, have the, should be in the same position as, uh, uh, as the public counsel. The, the ministerial counsel should not have knowledge of the closed file if they're cross-examining the named person. There's other issues, uh, enhancing the ability of a special advocate to defend the interests in the closed hearing, ensuring that the special advocate has access uh, to call witnesses, has access to the secret judgments. These are all matters that are raised in my factum. So that was the first point I wanted to deal with. But the point being that we're not operating on a level playing field now. Oh, the last point, of course, is juniors. I mean, special advocates don't have juniors. There's only uh, the legislation calls for one. Uh, the practice has been two, but there's, this is not a, a requirement of the legislation. Uh, the government council can have 20, 30, as many lawyers as they deem necessary. And uh, as, as, as you may be aware, some of these files have huge amounts of information that have to be shifted through. The second point I want to deal with is the issue of, of the sufficiency of disclosure. And uh, this uh, deals with, Justice Cromwell, your, your point about paragraph 71 of Harkett. 
the last sentence he says, I conclude that the public evidence provided Mr. Harker with, with adequate knowledge of the allegations. It gave him much of the factual evidence on which the ministers relied. I think that's the problem is the test is wrong. It's not much. The test has to be sufficient evidence to be able to challenge the reliability of the government's case, not much. And the Federal Court of Appeals said he had gotten more, and that was better than before. The, the issue isn't whether it's better than before. The issue is whether it's sufficient. Uh, uh, the test we would propose is as follows. The named person must have the opportunity to identify errors, find omissions, refute false allegations, and test the credibility and reliability of the information and the witnesses. An effective opportunity to meet the case requires that the named person be able to raise the defenses that would have been available to him or her had he had access to the secret evidence. The, uh, Mr. Justice Moldova, you made reference to the A decision of the, uh, of the European Court. The A decision was uh, decided in March and then the AF was decided in June of the same year, 2009. And I think the standard that was set by the British Supreme Court in the AF case might be of assistance to this court when it, when it considers. The, uh, the United Kingdom uh, Supreme Court has emphasized the need to give the person concerned sufficient disclosure to allow them to mount an effective challenge to the allegations. The House of Lords considered the fairness of the control proceedings and stated, and this is from paragraph 103 of the judgment, Baroness Hale of Richmond, the test is whether the control person has had the possibility effectively to challenge the allegations against him. For this, he does not have to be told all the allegations, but he has to have sufficient information about those allegations to be able to give effective instructions to his special advocate. And we place emphasis on effective instructions. In our submission, in order to give effective instructions to the special advocate, the special advocate who knows the secret evidence is not a mind reader. And I must say I'm very flattered by the comments of some of the justices about how wonderful the special advocates are and by my friends who suggest that we're the panacea that constitutionalizes the process. But the reality is special advocates, uh, when confronted with a, a secret record, cannot adequately challenge the record unless somehow they can communicate with the named person to get information from the named person that allows them to effectively do their job. In some cases, an enhanced system of communication may permit the special advocates to effectively do their job. How does In that I work on the ground, Mr. Waldman? Pardon me? I mean, I, I, you're, you're saying words that are very important, uh, the ability to meet the case and make sure that there's sufficiency of disclosure to be able to permit the meeting of the case. Who decides that? I mean, how, how does that work on the ground? Well, it, it's obviously the ultimate, it's going to have to be the, at first instance, the, the, the designated judge is going to have to make that determination. The difficulty, uh, difficulty I have with Justice Noel's decision is that he, he uses the phrase, he was given much of the factual evidence. And that's, I can't, I don't think that's the correct test. If he was given much, that means there was some he wasn't given. And it's that body of some that he wasn't given that he didn't have an effective opportunity to challenge. Right? 
And so the test can't be much, it can't be more, it has to be sufficient to effectively challenge. And that's, uh, and that I think is the essence of the test uh, set out by the House of Lords in the AF decision. So your position is the wording of paragraph 71 doesn't allow us to conclude that he was saying it's enough when he said much. Much, yes, You're saying exactly. focus on the much rather than the inference to be drawn from paragraph 71. Right. I think that, I think that he misinstructed himself with respect to the test, and the test isn't much, it isn't more. It's sufficient to be able to effectively challenge the evidence. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Edward. Thank you. Chief Justice, members of the court, uh, I appear today on behalf of Carl, and our intervention is focused solely on the issue of Section 7 breaches that can arise from the destruction of the original investigative materials by the service in national security cases. With respect to issues of remedy, we do adopt the position of the Criminal Lawyers Association. So let me start with where do we go to find the principles to deal with CISA's destruction of evidence? And it's clear in our respectful submission, those principles lie in the context of the criminal law. And we can with comfort go to that knowing that the real difference between the disclosure regime to which the named person is entitled is managed by the nature and, manage of dis uh, nature and manner of disclosure. So all things can't flow as much as possible should flow. And my friends all resort to the criminal law. Uh, they look at the decision of law and other cases to look at what is the effect of the destruction of evidence. Turning to the criminal law is also very consistent with this Court's decision in Charkawi. It was to those kinds of criminal law principles that the Court had resort to. And it is the only set of principles that reflect the interests at stake, life, liberty, and security of the person. Now, with the greatest of respect to our friends, the ministers, we submit that they misapprehend the jurisprudence in two respects. The first is what must be shown to establish a breach of the government's duty to make disclosure. The second area of dispute is what is the nature and threshold for establishing actual prejudice to a claimant's right to a fair hearing. So we make the following submissions on those points. Contrary to the Minister's submission, actual prejudice is not required to establish a breach of the Crown's disclosure obligations or the entitlement to a remedy. This Court has been consistent from law through to Shokawi II with respect to the existence and the degree of additional or actual prejudice is relevant only to the fashioning of a just and appropriate remedy. Secondly, to establish actual pre prejudice, as this Court held in Dixon and in the subsequent cases, all the claimant needs show 
is that there is a reasonable possibility that the loss or destruction of evidence could affect, one, the outcome of the proceeding, or two, the overall fairness of the process. And one looks to what was foreclosed. Was it the reasonable possible uses of the non-disclosed evidence and or reasonable possible avenues of investigation? And this Court has said that very clearly. So what is important to observe here is actual prejudice is made out where the destruction of evidence impairs the claimant's right to meet the case, not simply his right to know the case. The claimant is not required to establish that he is unable to put forward a defense in order to establish actual prejudice. The degree of prejudice does not determine the existence of the breach or an entitlement to a remedy, but, in, but in, instead should be considered at the remedial end of the process to determine what remedy should flow. Let me then turn to what did Sharkawi II really decide? This court was very clear that CSIS has a duty. The duty was to retain and disclose original materials acquired in the course of targeted investigations. Why? Because of the seriousness of the consequences. And therefore, there was a corresponding high degree of procedural fairness required. This court held that that duty owed by the service was breached and issued what it said was the only appropriate remedy at that stage of the proceeding to confirm the duty to disclose to Mr. Sharkoui's the entire file, not just what the minister relied on, the entire file in its possession in respect of him to the designated judge, and the judge was then to filter it through to Mr. Sharkoui and his counsel. In Sharkoui II, it is very, very clear that the court expressly contemplated that the designated judge would have an additional role. That role would be to review the entirety of the evidence, and he might feel at the end of that process a further remedy was necessary up to including a stay of proceedings. Now, despite that, what we submit is a very clear ruling. The ministers appear to argue there is no breach of Section 7, absent a demonstration of actual prejudice, and that the Court of Appeal was wrong in finding that the destruction of the original investigative materials constituted a breach of Mr. Harkat's Section 7 rights. The ministers rely on law to put forward that proposition, and we agree that law establishes the appropriate analytical and principled framework, but we submit the minister's interpretation is wrong. Sorry, just to interrupt on that for one second. If law establishes the framework, it seems to me that the Dixon-Talifer approach is for evidence discovered after, and law is the approach when it's discovered the loss or missing evidence discovered during the process. So you spent a little bit of time, Ms. Everett, trying to say that 
what you look for is, you know, might the effect, might the result have been different? Was there an avenue you could have explored? I thought that was a different test and related to after the event than during the event. Uh, that it's a very, very fair question that you're asking me. I'm not sure. Um, what we looked for was where in the criminal law jurisprudence do we go to find a principled test that looks at real prejudice? What is actual prejudice? And it is very clear that the most, the most obvious place was in cases like Dixon and Tayafur and Eels is another one, uh, the decision of this court. We think you can extract that principle. While obviously when the evidence is completely gone, it is inherently more speculative. But still the notion of reasonable possibility um, to challenge, to test, to have investigations conducted. Let me give you an example. We know that um, in the national security context, if there is a wiretap and if the uh, language was um, spoken in Arabic and an interpretive summary created um, really almost immediately into English, that raises a whole range of questions. We also know, and a read of the Jabala decision will tell you, that, the, uh, that not all of the intercepts are kept. Only those that meet with the uh, requirements that the communication analysis is, has, has identified. So if, in fact, they are given a briefing, they choose intercepts or communications that accord with their understanding of what the investigation is. So in fairness, then, all of the originals are destroyed. So when one asks the question and uses the language of reasonable possibility, Justice Moldaver, anyone who has done a criminal trial with wires would know that those reasonable possibilities would include, is the interpretation correct? What is lost in the context because other wires have been destroyed? Is the, uh, is the communication in a language which is highly idiomatic? Is it correctly transcribed? Um, what is the nature of the greeting? Um, is the greeting recorded at all? Because the nature of a greeting can tell you a great deal about whether there's a a dominant relationship on one party or the other. So that all gets lost. So when one asks the question, are there reasonable possible ways to investigate, the answer is, in my respectful submission, relatively obvious when there has been the complete destruction of the original materials. Of course there are reasonable possible ways to investigate that would also inform the tactical choices of the defense or the defense of the named person. So we think that in searching for a principal model that has been developed by this court, and while it is in a slightly different context, because indeed there has been a trial, there was uh, no evidence, and then the evidence is now found, uh, even in that context, the court has chosen to use a threshold for establishing uh, prejudice of reasonable possibility. I don't think I can answer it any, any better than that. Thank you. Thank you. Am I out of time? I am. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much you. for your attention. Mr. Baba.
I represent the National Council of Canadian Muslims, formerly known as the Canadian American Islamic, uh, sorry, the Canadian Council on American Islamic Relations, a mouthful of a, of a name, which is partly why we changed it. Um, my submission today uh, echoes much of what you've heard and what you will hear, uh, and we begin with the principle that we believe there is no substitute for the role of counsel in the administration of justice and in protecting the interests of individuals engaged with the justice system. That role for counsel, fully equipped with all of the traditional uh, tools of our trade that lawyers use in the exercise of their purpose, has always been an essential function of all administrative uh, processes. And the, the function of this is to ensure that administration of justice is, is carried out in open and in fairness. And it's the principle of openness and fairness that we begin with, uh, the principle of uh, ju open justice being what this court has described as the very soul of justice. In, especially in cases like this, where you have information that will form the basis of decisions that will have particularly uh, powerful impacts on the individual subject to those decisions, the importance of, of counsel and in particular the, the role of cross-examination to test that underlying information can't be uh, overstated. Uh, this is especially true when that underlying information is unreliable and untrustworthy, which uh, we submit uh, is often the case in the area of national security. And it's even more important when the subject of that information or the subjects of that information are drawn from members uh, of a vulnerable community. In this case, uh, though uh, it uh, hasn't been directly addressed uh, by any of the parties or interveners so far, uh, I do bring this fact to your attention that security certificates have been uh, uh, issued against members of the Canadian Muslim community or Muslim Canadians uh, in an overwhelmingly, uh, uh, in an overwhelming respect, virtually in every in every post 9/11 case, um, and on top of that, this is a community that has been the subject of national security policy and priorities over the past 12 years. Now, Canadian Muslims understand the importance of public safety and national security. Indeed. They benefit from national security as much as any other Canadian does. But the point that my clients uh, feel is important to be raised in, in the hearing of this matter in particular is that Canadian Muslims pay a higher cost for that security. And because of that, it's important to remember when balancing interests and defining what fairness means in this case, uh, that we think about fairness in two respects, both res with respect to the individual uh, who's subject to the certificate, but also in terms of the general interests of society uh, and of affected groups. And of course, my client's interest in this appeal relates primarily to this second dimension of fairness, uh, which is a different societal interest than national security, which of course has been raised. Now, whether you, you do this under Section 1 or Section 7, uh, uh, I'm not taking a position on where that is better to be done or how that should be done, but no doubt you will be balancing interests. And I urge you to consider the interests of this vulnerable community that has been overwhelmingly affected by uh, this nation's approach to protecting security. 
And the, the fundamental problem with the security certificate provisions at stake in this issue is secrecy. And it's our submission that it is secrecy that contributes to the reproduction of negative stereotypes against Canadian Muslims. And we know uh, that they have been the subject of scrutiny since 9-11. Uh, we also know that heightened suspicion has fed uh, assumptions and general patterns of discrimination in the, in the broader society. Now, why is discrimination in the broader society, this climate of fear that Canadian Muslims have lived with for the past 12 years, relevant here? And this is because that climate of fear, those patterns of systemic discrimination that occur within the society, do have a tendency and can infect institutional and administrative action. We need to be realistic about that. And we need to do everything we can as a justice system to guard against that. And it's my submission that the, the thing we do, the easiest thing to do, the most important part of our process is to ensure an open process with a fully equipped council. And whether, that, whether the function of council is being carried out by a special advocate or by uh, the individual's uh, council, proper council. Uh, the problem is the bifurcation of the function of council. You have nobody who is able to perform the, the traditional role that, that, that all lawyers play when representing a client. Who would be responsible then? <laughs> I'm assuming what, uh, you used the word balancing. I'm, I'm assuming that you think there's something in the process when you have just one council that will take into account those confidential issues, or are you saying there is nothing confidential between a lawyer and his or her client? Yes, that's it. That's and your position. So yes. I was right to read this as, a, as an absolute. That's correct. Okay. Uh, I agree with other, other arguments that have made, been made here today that, that you need to, if, if information is going to be used to put someone away, that information has to be checked and confronted. This court has made very clear the importance of confronting adverse information and adverse evidence, uh, the importance of the confrontation right for the named person or for the individual affected by the law is of utmost importance. And you can only do that through cross-examination in the form of counsel. M my position is simply, it doesn't matter if the special advocate is doing that or the, counsel, the public counsel is doing that, as long as the person serving that function is able to communicate effectively with the individual in order to get to the bottom of the facts and present the, the decision-maker with a full picture of the facts. That's, that's what's ultimately the most important thing. The, judge, the designated judge is not getting a full pack, factual picture uh, in the absence of effective cross-examination, and that certainly can't meet the test of a meaningful hearing uh, as laid out in Sharkawi 1 by this court. But I don't see how... We keep coming back to what's essential and what's sufficient and so on. I mean, what I'm hearing here is unless the named person, for example, knows the identity of the, the confidential informant, you can't have a fair hearing. Because I'm, what I've been hearing is, is that you've got to be able to cross-examine and find out whether this person has a grudge or this person has lied before or this person, whatever. This gets us into the realm of, we, we're actually going beyond criminal law in a way, but it gets us into a realm of unless you get everything, you can't make full answer in defense. I mean, if someone wants to say that, I'd like to hear it. Well, we, we tailor our 
or the rights of individuals in, in procedures to the implications or the impact that, that, that those procedures are going to have on them. And what we have here is an analogy to the most serious uh, criminal offenses uh, in the case of, of individuals subject to a security certificate where there is no alternative to deportation. Uh, the alternative is, is potentially a lifetime of, of incarceration. So that's, that's the balancing that, that we're left with. And Sorry, I don't hear any balancing. I apologize for interrupting. I don't hear any balancing in this. There's no balance. You must give the name person the name of the informant so that a proper cross-examination can be done, whether it be done by the special counsel or the name person's lawyer. I think it matters. It, I think that the answer to that question would depend if the person's going to be incarcerated for a day or for 10 years. Uh, and what we know is that security certificate detentions and the ongoing control measures can, ha can impact people for years. And in such a case, I think the justification for not providing full disclosure uh, would need to be uh, very compelling. I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm, that I'm persuaded. Um, my, my, my primary uh, point to make to you, and in my, la in my few remaining seconds, I will bring it home uh, by simply emphasizing the importance that uh, the Charter brings to government being both, uh, ac both being attentive to the impact of uh, its actions and also concerned about the perception. And what I can tell you uh, is that my client uh, has heard a lot from members of its community about concern about, per about the perception of fairness. Uh, and it's important that the law send the important signals to those individuals of society who are meant to benefit from it. And if Canadian Muslims are to believe that the Charter is for them, that it means something to them, and that it's there to work for them, not against them, uh, affording individuals in such a process, the, the, the traditional rights that other parties subject to the state's power have in adjudicative proceedings, such as cross-examination and full disclosure, becomes of the utmost importance. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Bassin. I'm going to wait for my water, if I may. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice. One of the essential questions before the court in this appeal is similar to what the court addressed in Sharkawi 1, and that is whether the current amended security certificate procedure is fair and in compliance with the Charter. This afternoon, Amnesty International will approach that question from an international human rights law perspective by addressing the following matters. First, what constitutes the right to a fair trial under international law? What are the permissible limitations to that right? And finally, whether Canada's current security certificate provisions meet international standards, which in turn inform our understanding of the principles of fundamental justice. And in our submission, they do not. The starting point for determining what constitutes a fair trial under international law is Article 14 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which the UN Human Rights Committee has stated applies to deportation proceedings such as Canada's security certificate process. In his 2008 report to the United Nations, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism stated that 
all aspects of counterterrorism law and practice must be in compliance with international human rights law, including the right to a fair trial. In fact, so vital is the right to a fair trial that the Human Rights Committee has stated that even in a state of emergency threatening the life of a nation, the principles of legality and the rule of law require that fundamental requirements of a fair trial be respected. While Article 14 contains only one specific limitation on due process protection involving the exclusion of the public and the press under certain conditions, the Human Rights Committee does contemplate that other limitations may occur, but makes it clear that the onus is on the state to demonstrate first that such limitation is necessary and that any limiting measures are proportionate to the pursuance of legitimate aims, requirements which we note are not present in Canada's security certificate procedure. The committee has stated that in no case may restrictions be applied or invoked in a manner that would impair the essence of a covenant right. In other words, whatever restrictions are applied, an individual's fundamental right uh, to you're fair citing, proceeding... You're citing many sources of, inter, of international law, but you seem to be giving little, little attention to what it is actually binding Canada at the present time. Well, our Act says that it shall be interpreted in conformity with the principles of international human rights law uh, to conventions that we have signed. And so we have signed the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and as this Court has said many times, those international principles inform our understanding of what constitutes fundamental justice. That concept, that whatever adjustments or modifications are made to the procedure, it must still be fair, is not only the starting point of our analysis, it is effectively the bottom line. What then constitutes a fair procedure? At a minimum, fair trial safeguards generally include three elements, equality of arms, an adversarial process, and the principle of open justice. In our submission, notwithstanding the addition of the special advocate, Canada's security certificate system undermines all three of those elements of a fair procedure. And this afternoon, I'll address the first two, equality of arms and the adversarial process. Equality of arms means that parties to a proceeding have a reasonable opportunity to present their case such that neither party is placed at a substantial disadvantage with respect to the other. In the security certificate procedure, there are several instances where the named person is at a disadvantage with respect to the minister. For example, the minister is not excluded from any stage of the proceedings. The named person is. The minister enjoys unfettered communication with counsel. The named person has restricted communication with the person statutorily charged with protecting his interests. The minister has the benefit of full disclosure of all of the named person's evidence. The named person is not so similarly entitled. In fact, as we've discussed this morning, the statute specifically prohibits certain information and evidence from being either disclosed to or summarized for the applicant. And finally, the Act, uh, Act allows the Minister to withdraw evidence that had previously been submitted, and once withdrawn, that evidence, including evidence that may be beneficial to the named person, cannot provide the basis for the judge's decision, and no similar privilege is accorded to the named person. In our submission, taken together, these measures leave the named person at a substantial disadvantage. 
And furthermore, those disadvantages are not remedied by the special advocate. And that becomes clear when one looks at the security certificate provisions regarding the adversarial process. At the root of the adversarial process is the right of a party to know the case it has to meet and have a meaningful opportunity to respond to that case. And that right is undermined in these security certificate proceedings in three fundamental ways. And first, as just stated, the named person is not aware of and therefore not able to respond adequately to all of the information and evidence that has been submitted in support of the minister's case. Although entitled to a summary of that information and evidence, summaries cannot include anything that in the judge's opinion would be injurious to national security or endanger the safety of any person if disclosed. Consequently, crucial details may be missing from that summary. Moreover, the Act, as has been discussed this morning, allows judges to base decisions on information or evidence that has been neither summarized nor disclosed uh, to the named person. And as a result, persons in those circumstances may never know all of the reasons why they're being deported. Secondly, regardless of their skill, experience, or diligence, special advocates are limited in their ability to protect the interests well, of the Well, to, to be clear, I, I, I'm trying to, uh, to understand what you're proposing. Are you staying, uh, saying that essentially this process should be run like a regular civil or criminal trial? Not necessarily I would answer that question. I think that what we are trying to propose is that in any system there are these guiding principles, that yes, there may be limitations, but the onus is on the state to prove they're necessary, they're proportionate, and whatever you do, you still have to make it fair. With respect to the special advocate's ability to protect the interests of the, of the person, um, they cannot directly advance an alternative. You know, the way you challenge a case, the way a person succeeds in, in, in a proceeding is to either impeach the other side's witnesses or to build an alternative narrative that, to that put forward by their opponent. Special advocates cannot directly advance an alternative narrative because they have no express statutory authority to call witnesses or to submit evidence. A uh, an effective cross-examination generally requires a full and frank discussion with the named person to expose a witness's bias or their motivation or their interest. Even questioning a witness's power of observation or recall requires a detailed knowledge of circumstances that may be known only to the person concerned. Under our system, however, that discussion cannot occur without the judge's authorization and subject to the judge's conditions. In other words, it may never take place at all, or if it does take place, it can be severely limited in its scope. What others have said, and we will repeat, what the Act does is it bifurcates in an adversarial process what is generally one set of coordinated actions that are taken by counsel. That is, while the special advocates have access to all of the information and the evidence, they have limited access to the individual concerned. The named person's lawyers, on the other hand, have full access to their client, but limited access to that information and evidence. It might work if the two could talk to each other and exchange notes, but the Act restricts communication between the special advocate and counsel. And consequently, in these proceedings, the whole is less than the sum of its parts. And thirdly, the ability to meaningfully respond to the case one has to meet includes, as this court said in Sharkawi 1, the ability to formulate a legal strategy, and that requires knowledge of the case law. Because certain information and evidence may not be disclosed to the named person, 
The Act allows for the development of a secret or closed body of jurisprudence, which is accessible to the minister but not to the named person. And I would refer the Court to that recent, very recent decision of Jabala, where Justice Hansen, uh, in the very first paragraph of her decision, refers to, quote, top-secret reasons for her order being issued concurrently, i.e., there are two sets of reasons, one secret, one not. Finally, just as, the, as special advocates cannot, I think I'd better skip this and go to my conclusion. Um, in our submission, it's not relevant whether the addition of special advocates to the security certificate system grants the named person, in the words of the Federal Court of Appeal, a greater opportunity to know and meet the case against them. The test is not whether the procedure is less un unconstitutional than it was before. Rather, it is whether the procedure is fair, in compliance with the Charter, and consistent with international human rights standards. The issue is not whether the security certificate procedure is as fair as can be. For as one British special advocate has noted, as fair as can be is not the same as fair. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Jackman. Good afternoon. Um, I'm, going, I'm here for the Canadian Council for Refugees and the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group, and I'm going to deal more with framework issues, like what are the consequences to the person concerned in terms of the statute and how that should frame the analysis of what safeguards are needed in a substantive equality sense. And then the second one is what's the context within which you're making this decision. So with respect to the first, there's only two points in terms of consequences. If a person is found, it, it, first of all, most of the cases, unlike Mr. Harkat, are caught at the beginning. The person is not recognized as a convention refugee. Mr. Harkat was. They came after him afterwards when he'd applied for landing. But in most of the cases, it's before. So if you're found to be described in Section 34, you're a member of a terrorist organization, you don't get a refugee hearing. You don't at all there is no determination of whether or not the person has a well-founded fear of persecution. Persecution can include torture. You don't get an oral hearing in front of an independent board. Instead, all that you get is a written application under the pre-removal risk assessment program in which they determine, normally in writing, although the officer can conduct an interview, um, whether or not you meet a, on a balance of probabilities a risk of torture or other forms of cruel treatment. So you can have someone who may have a well-founded fear of torture, in other words, there's a good possibility, but doesn't meet the balance of probabilities. That person will be deported to torture because we don't use the well-founded fear test for these people. So they, they lose significant safeguards in the process, which is why it is super important that this process be fair because you don't want to cut out people and have them end up back in their home country like was all over the news this week about the guy in Sri Lanka being murdered. Those, those, those are really serious issues if the process is not a fair one. Where does that take you? I think it takes you to substantive equality. It might look in our written factum like we're equating this with a criminal trial. We're not. What we're saying is that substantive equality requires that you look at the consequences to the person and you ensure within the context of the nature of the decision being made 
that the process is a fair one. It doesn't mean you get criminal trial standards, but it does mean that you have a fairer process than what we have now. And I don't think, one of the things I think that's important in this context is to recognize when this court decided Chiarelli, it looks like it's a contradiction, but I don't think it is. In Chiarelli, the court said, look, immigration is a factor when you're, when you're analyzing this. You have no right to remain in Canada. Mr. Harkat has no right to remain in Canada, but he has a right to life. It is not a residence issue. It's a human rights issue. And so I think Chiarelli allows you to look at the immigration context in relation to whether or not a person can stay. But when you're talking about fundamental human rights that, that, that attach to people, as opposed to people with a particular status, immigration should not play a role in that. You must determine the safeguards based on the human rights interests that's at stake, aside from the question of residence. So the government can decide who's undesirable, but they can't give someone an unfair process when their life's at stake. Isn't there a second stage uh, to look at issues such as returning a person to torture? Um, I hadn't thought the cer security certificate regime addressed that specifically. No, it doesn't. Perhaps not, that's not what you're saying, but no, it seems to be the tone of your submission. The thing is, is that you get the deportation order from the security certificate process. Then you get a risk assessment, and missing in that risk assessment is the oral hearing, as in Singh, and a determination of whether you have a well-founded fear of persecution. Now, the government could say, Article 33, you're a risk to the security, but you're not a risk to the security. Most, most of these people aren't. If you look in our factum, we gave examples. It, it's member in a terrorist organization which may be a very tenuous relationship, may have nothing to is do Is that really before us? Perhaps I'm missing something. No. I thought we were here mainly to look at this particular regime leading to a security certificate and uh, then some subsidiary questions as to how that regime should work. But and he will be seen to be a member if he's, if he, I mean, if his decision is upheld, a member of a terrorist organization. That's the grounds that these cases are based on. I'm not asking you to decide the membership. I'm asking you to look at the fact that this has broad implications for broad, a broad number of people. And that's the second point that I wanted to get to, which is, which is the, the question of, of the pro, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm losing my place, which is the question of the context within which you're making this decision. You said, Chief Justice McLaughlin, that you've got the constitutional issues before you. Those constitutional issues impact not just on the security certificate process. If you look at what we, we put before you in writing, there have been some 30-odd security certificate cases over 22 years. There are over 100 cases where there's a secret process in federal court since 2008. That's the same kind of process. No special advocate's ever been appointed. More people are deported in a secret process in front of an immigration division member than are, than are brought before the federal court on the security certificate. So when you're looking at this issue, I think what's, what's fundamental is looking at the consequences to the person, not whether it's a security certificate per se, but, but in, in terms of the normalizing of secrecy, you've got to be making the decision in that context. You know the Ezekola case where you said, it's paragraph 81, 
In our review, it's necessary to re-articulate the Canadian approach to Article 1 FA to firmly foreclose such broad forms of complicity. I think that's what you need to do here, too. Secrecy is becoming the norm. You need to reinstate or re-articulate the importance of open justice. As a prelude to whatever you decide in this case, the lower courts, everybody is looking at your decisions, combing through them to find statements that support or oppose or don't support the positions that they want to, they want to advance in the lower courts and before these tribunals. Open justice is getting lost in the process. Secrecy is becoming the norm, and, and if, if there's one thing you need to do, it's to say that national security may be an important interest, but the open justice or the open court principle is just as, if not more important, because if you look at the consequences of closed systems of justice, there, it's not just lack of respect for the government, it ends up being lack of respect for the court, because you have to be trusted in the secret proceeding. And it's very difficult on an ongoing basis when people lose and they don't understand why they lost to trust the judges that are doing the case. So it's fundamental in my submission that, that you reassert those first principles around open justice in order to recalibrate, so to speak, where we're at in this system. Because I think one of the articles we had put in our authorities is this article by Ip, and, and I think he, his article stands for almost an axiomatic proposition. Once you have something in place, a law, it doesn't stay static. There's a tendency to push and broaden it and broaden it because it's useful. It's useful to use secrecy in some contexts, so then you start using it in other places. Look at the article on what's happened in Britain. They have parole board hearings, family hearings, secrecy permeates many different kinds of decision-making in Britain. We can't let that happen in Canada. It's not necessary, and it shouldn't. It shouldn't be happening. This time, I mean, this is the third time you've had a security certificate before you. Do you want to have the Immigration Division cases start coming up? They're not even clear that Section 7 is engaged in those cases because it's not federal court. It needs to be, I mean, you need to set clear principles that will give guidance to the lower courts, I think, on these sort of first principles. Those are my submissions. Ms. Davies. Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, I am here today on behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association and, and will adopt the submissions of Ms. Edward in respect of the analytical framework that should apply for assessing whether or not CSIS destruction of original records constitutes a violation of Section 7. And I will focus our submissions on how to craft a just and appropriate remedy that provides adequate relief for the injury occasioned by a breach, as, Mr. Uh, as counsel for Mr. Harkat has argued. I'd like to, though, start from a slightly different perspective and ask the court to consider the importance of the role of the court uh, in preventing miscarriages of justice in all cases. In Canada, we have far too many examples of individuals who have been wrongly convicted on the basis of mistakes made 
at the investigative stage by the police. I don't need to name the names. They will all be familiar to you. There is no reason to assume that security intelligence investigations will be less fallible or more reliable. In fact, we have recent examples of where dire consequences have been occasioned to Canadian citizens from mistakes made in the context of security intelligence investigations. We have Mr. Arar and three other Canadians who were arrested, detained, and tortured, and tortured in Syria, in part on the basis of flawed intelligence. And so this court has already recognized the significant potential consequences from the security certificate process and has found that they can be, in fact, more serious than a criminal conviction. So if CSIS does get it wrong in their investigative process, the named person could be improperly removed from Canada and face those dire consequences that this court has recognized, including being detained, persecuted, tortured, or even killed. So any assessment of the appropriate remedy to lost evidence has to start from the position that CSIS will make mistakes. They will make mistakes in terms of voice identification. They will make mistakes in terms of translations. They will make mistakes in the selection of information and the omission of information from summaries. They will make mistakes in their analysis of the information and they will omit exculpatory information from their summaries. So it is the role of the court to ensure that mistakes made at the investigative stage do not translate into wrongful convictions in the criminal context or miscarriages of justice in this context. And so the courts must be in a position with the assistance of public counsel and special advocates to detect mistakes made in the investigative process. That's why this court said that procedural fairness in Sharkawi 2 includes a procedure to verify the accuracy of information. If the courts are precluded from doing so, they run the risk of reinforcing mistakes that are made. And we have evidence, or you have evidence before you in this case, that mistakes have been made in this case. You also have the Jabala case, which demonstrates that mistakes were made in the summary creation process in that case. And so understood from that perspective that there will be mistakes in the summary creation process, the federal court was quite correct to point out that the summaries are the problem, not the solution that they are by necessity of unknown reliability. And just to answer a question that I think, Justice Abella, you raised earlier, it's not just the creation of the summaries that's the problem. It's also the fact that CSIS has destroyed a huge body of evidence from which we are left, a selected group of summaries that reflect CSIS's interests that have been filtered. So when crafting the appropriate remedy, the court has to be mindful of the fact that mistakes will be made, and it is the role of the court to detect them. So what are the factors that go into establishing what remedy should be provided? One is obviously the prejudice occasioned, and second, whether or not there is a reasonable substitute for the original. 
We cannot measure with precision what the prejudice is from lost evidence. I acknowledge that. But at a minimum, the prejudice in this case is the inability to verify the accuracy or challenge the content of the summaries. Providing a summary, and this is not about what the named individual gets. This is equally a problem for the special advocate because the special advocate is not in a position to challenge or verify voice identification. Is this actually a summary of a conversation involving Mr. Harkat? The content, the translation, none of those things can be verified. So it's not just about whether or not the named person can mount an affirmative response, can get up as Mr. Harkat did and said, I didn't make that conversation or I don't think the conversation happened that way. It's also about the ability to test the case. There have been issues raised about whether or not you can corroborate the content of a summary. And let me just address that issue. At most, you could say that there may be other information that is consistent with the content of the summary. You cannot confirm that the conversation that was summarized also contained that information or that the conversation necessarily involved the parties that the minister says it did. And if the information that the designated judge is looking at truly corroborates, say for example the other party to the conversation came forward and confirmed that that summary was accurate, there would be no need to rely on the summary. The other information that truly corroborates would be available to the minister as the basis of their analysis. So the prejudice is the inability to question or challenge whether the summary is accurate at all. That's the prejudice. And the ability, Mr. Harkat's memory and his ability to testify are not adequate substitutes, and I say so for three reasons. First, human memory is notoriously faulty and fades over time. And you've already heard Mr. Weber's submission in respect of the delay between when the conversations occurred and when, when Mr. Harkat was asked to describe the contents of communications. But more importantly, there is no way to resolve disputes that might arise between the named individual and the summary about who was actually involved in the calls. The problem with the remedy fashioned by the Court of Appeal in this case is it presumes that the ministers have accurately identified the parties to the conversations. But there's no way to resolve the dispute that arose in this case in respect of 10 of the 20 summarized calls about who was involved. Mr. Harkat says, it wasn't me. And Justice Maldaver, you asked this morning, well, should we just accept his evidence on that? Well, the answer to that is not necessarily, but why should you accept that the summary has accurately identified him as a participant? And so you are left with an inability to resolve a key issue before there should ever be a credibility assessment. If he was not part of the conversation, he has nothing to answer. And without the original records, there's no way to resolve that issue. 
And the third reason that it's insufficient is the traditional indicia that we look to in terms of resolving credibility disputes are unavailable when all you have is a summary. It may be available if you had a transcript or you had another party to the call. You would have those indicia upon which you could assess the situation. As this court has said before, in drafting an appropriate remedy for the lost evidence, the remedy has to actually address the prejudice suffered or vindicate the rights of the claimant. It must be fair to the minister. There's no doubt about that. And it must consider all of the circumstances. And in my submission, the exclusion of all of the summaries is the only just remedy. It's the only way to vindicate Mr. Mr. Harkat's right to a process which in which evidence can be verified. It is not unfair to the minister to require them to establish the reasonableness of the certificate on verifiable information, and it will ensure that the court can exercise its function of ensuring there's no miscarriage of justice. Thank you. Thank you. Reply. Thank you. I just have uh, seven brief points to make in reply. First uh, goes to the nature of the statutory scheme. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on 83.1i. I remind you that it is a scheme. It's got to be the provisions have to be read as a whole and read together, and that one in particular has to be read uh, in relation to 83.1e, which instructs the judge that they shall ensure that the person is reasonably informed of the case against them. So in the situation where the allegation or details supporting the allegation can't be disclosed, the question for the judge is, is, the special, is disclosure to the special advocate a reasonable substitute uh, in the circumstances? If it's not, the judge is not compelled to issue, uh, to issue an unfair judgment. The judge may ask the, uh, the um, ministers either to withdraw the allegation or the, the judge can find that uh, the certificate is unreasonable, perhaps in an extreme case uh, they could stay proceedings, but none of that renders the scheme unconstitutional. Secondly, with respect to prejudice, uh, Just, uh, Justice Noel was tasked by Sharkoe II to go back and, and look at the question, look at his methodology. Uh, and in, uh, in particular, I'd ask you to look at paragraph 66 of the abuse of process judgment, which is at tab 9C of our condensed book. The methodology is uh, flawless in my submission. He goes back and he looks at the, the summaries and says, are they consistent with other evidence? Are they consistent with details of Mr. Harkat's uh, life? He goes through a very careful analysis, and in my respectful submission, you shouldn't interfere with it. Third, with respect to communications, uh, the claim is made here that the, the scheme doesn't allow fair communications, uh, and evidence was given by counsel on that uh, this afternoon. The best evidence on this is this case, because we say that allegation is factually untrue. I'd ask you to look in particular at tab 10E, which is one of the key communication uh, uh, orders in this case. And the context for it was 
information had come out of the closed uh, hearings uh, and the judge allowed further extensive communication. In our respectful submission, this scheme allowed a fair opportunity to communicate. Fourth, the Katab allegation that uh, Mr. Boxall fixed on. One of the two key allegations in this case, and it started at the beginning of the case as a bare allegation. Mr. Harkat knew Mr. Uh, Katab. As the case went on and the essays did their work, the judge did his work, more information came out. Look at tab four of our condensed book and tab five, pages 130 and 131. By the end of the case, Mr. Harkat knew uh, that the allegation was about operating a guest house in a specific place in a specific time. We say that's enough. Now, Mr. Uh, Boxall says, uh, the ministers have it all wrong here. That allows them to respond, but what he needs to do is to be able to challenge it. Uh, with respect, that is code for no hearsay in these proceedings and full cross-examination. That's where that submission leads. Fifth, a uh, point was made about uh, the, the statutory provision about endangering the safety of the person. That is not just about human sources. It's about CESA's agents. You'll notice in, the, in these cases you, you got nothing more than initials or first names. They're protected. Uh, six, the uh, test for privilege. Uh, Mr. Norris says uh, this is uh, all about getting the identity uh, and says it as if there's something benign in that, but it wasn't just about getting the identity. That judgment was written in the context of an application for identity and cross-examination. And cross-examination, with respect, is about the evisceration of the privilege. Uh, seventh, uh, the BCCLA talks about the U UK scheme. They're comparing apples and oranges. The UK scheme uh, that they refer to, the TPIMS, is a scheme about that applies uh, to uh, control citizens. The relevant comparator, as we've noted in our factum, is the SIAC, which deals with deportation for national security reasons. And what that scheme allows is, with respect, exactly what 8381E allows, reasonable knowledge of the case against you. Uh, it is not the case uh, that the British scheme is more liberal. Uh, it's not the case, for that matter, that the American scheme that he didn't get to uh, is more uh, liberal. There's a certain irony in uh, reliance on the, uh, on the Guantanamo scheme uh, by my friends. Um, at the end of the day, the, the, uh, the question, and uh, Justice Abella was on to this point too, how does this work on the ground? And in our respectful submission, the designated judge made this uh, scheme work because the scheme gave him the discretion to make it work. Those would be my submissions. Thank you very much. The court will adjourn and return tomorrow morning at 9.30 in closed session. So, so, that's right. So.